This is Audible. BBC Audio presents Doctor Who, Revelation of the Daleks, by Eric Sayward, read by Terry Malloy. Chapter One. It was Wednesday morning. Aboard the TARDIS, Perry was having problems selecting which overcoat to wear. Her decision was made even more difficult as the choice of clothes in the time machine's wardrobes seemed almost limitless. Perry knew that asking the doctor for advice was pointless. He would just suggest the nearest garment on the closest rail. Whether the colour or style suited were immaterial, as the Time Lord's own bizarrely patterned coat attested. Still desperate for something suitable to wear, Perry entered the smallest of the TARDIS's wardrobes, like everywhere else on board the time machine, this was not a cosy little cupboard in the corner of a bedroom, but a vast cathedral-like area containing clothes from every part of far too many galaxies. As always, where to start, thought Perry, as she walked past endless racks of this and countless shelves of that, until her eyes settled on a dress of such amazing ugliness, she thought she might wear it just to annoy the Time Lord. Are you in there? called the doctor. More to the point, are you decent? When am I not? muttered Perry as she crossed to a rail, supposedly sporting the last known selection of haute couture from the planet V952. The disadvantage of this particular range was that it was invisible and could only be seen by the inhabitants of that planet. Perry wondered if they were taking Hans Christian Andersen's Emperor's new clothes too literally. I'm coming in, called the Time Lord. I'm over here, aisle 831. It's the section for the sartorially challenged. Oh yes, that's my favourite aisle, chuckled the doctor as his arms scythed the shortcut through the racks of clothes. Perry watched as a heaving, living mound of garments undulated towards her. She also wondered who cleared up the ocean of mess after they had gone. There you are, said the Time Lord, emerging from an avalanche of fabric. Note my attire, he said, pulling out two ten-centimetre-wide braces, then letting them snap back onto his chest like a cannonade being fired. He then indicated the reinforced ninostic synthetic belt around his waist. As you can see, I'm extra prepared. Perry was surprised at the excessive trouser support. You know I hate suspenders, they're so uncool. The Time Lord looked around. Uncool? Everything I wear is the ultra-peak of Gallifreyan sartorial coolness. Unfortunately, it's uncool everywhere else, mumbled Perry as she flicked through a rack of heavy overcoats. Let me explain these new accoutrements. They are not only physical, but also psychological. A smugness which only the newly regenerated Time Lord could create, spread across his face. 
It also means you're being overcautious, said Perry, as she slipped on an overcoat of ridiculously large proportions. This reflects my new lifestyle, the Time Lord announced. Recently I've been taking too many risks. These accoutrements are a reminder that I must slow down, stabilize and be more careful. In other words, this is my new belt and braces approach. For once the TARDIS was working smoothly. The time ratchets purred with satisfaction. The balance clamps were oscillating to perfection. In the time machine's well-appointed galley, the range's oven cooked impeccably. The doctor was preparing breakfast. To be exact, he was cooking a nut roast. Having recently become a vegetarian, the Time Lord now made this dish for breakfast every Wednesday. Even though it was an unusually early hour to be eating such a heavy meal, Perry found the dish a truly scrummy experience. As the doctor removed the roast from the oven, a bell tinkled somewhere. This told them that the TARDIS was approaching its destination. After placing the roasting tray on a heat-proof mat, he and Perry made their way to the console room. Displayed on the scanner screen was the image of a pretty blue-and-white planet hanging in deep, dark space. Perry stared at the screen. Hey, it looks a little like Earth. A New York accent pinged around the room, its timbre seeming much more abrasive than usual. I hope the indigenous population is friendlier than those we've encountered recently, the doctor smiled. You shouldn't have any problems? Oh, sure, like I've never heard that before. It's true, said the Time Lord, fine-tuning the landing coordinates. Because where we're going, the population is mostly dead, or in suspended animation. That piece of information didn't make Perry feel any happier. Down on the planet's surface, it continued to snow. It had been doing so all night. Heaped and piled, as though by a million tiny shovels, the snow was now being levelled by a brisk, icy wind. Otherwise it was quiet, the snow muffling rather than reflecting the sounds of the developing day. A watery sun had also started to rise, spreading its thin light across the terrain and creating long, attenuated shadows. The planet was called Necros. It was approximately the size of Mars and with an atmosphere much like Earth's. The key geographical differences were that Necros had three moons and its seas were without salt. Of its two major industrial enterprises, the biggest and most successful boasted the finest funerary ceremonies in the galaxy. It offered a unique end-of-life service known as the Posture for Perpetual Instatement. This attracted the rich, the famous, and the powerful. The name of this facility was Tranquil Repose, although it was known by its employees as T.R. The strange thing was, it was neither tranquil nor reposed. It was a mystery how long T.R. had existed on Necros. Archaeology suggested the oldest part was at least a thousand years old and unimaginatively known as the old catacombs. 
the development of massive underground extensions and the endless arbitrary jerry-building had resulted in an intermingling and confusion of the structures. Every architectural style ever practiced in the Twelve Galaxies had been incorporated. In spite of this jumble, or because of it, a weird ambience had come about over the years. The upper levels of tranquil repose were simpler but less interesting in design. Built soon after the arrival of its new director, the Great Healer, as he liked to be called, this area was known as the New Catacombs. It was an uninspiring and joyless complex that was admired by few. A short thrust ride from Tranquil Repose was a series of buildings called Kara's Kitchen. This was the other key industry of the planet. Here, food, largely in the form of edible synthetic protein, was produced on a vast scale for sale to the local solar systems. With production totally automated, the processing plant employed very few people. Had anyone been unfortunate enough to inspect the plant, they would have found little more than a mass of towers, vats, tanks and heater units linked together by vast bundles of twisted pipework and endless kilometres of conveyor belts. Running the factories was an entrepreneur who traded under the name of Kara Settle. Aged about forty, she was very much in control of her enterprise. Striking, rather than beautiful, she also displayed amazing style and poise. It was said her only true weakness was an obsession with eating chocolate-covered locusts while soaking in a warm bath of Lindosian's milk. Aiding Kara in her work was Vogel, her excessively faithful private secretary. His name in some Earth languages means bird. This was not inappropriate, as Vogel spent much of his time strutting around and metaphorically snapping and pecking at others who disagreed with him. However, in Kara's company, he was obsequious and creeping to a stunningly unnatural degree. They were a perfect pair. Somewhere near tranquil repose, a spiel snape yelped. Breakfast had been hunted, caught, and was now being devoured. First kill of the day. This might have been avoided had the unfortunate spiel snape not adopted its usual habit of hiding its head under a stone and pretending it could not be seen. This only made the creature perfect prey for the Voltrox, a much more resourceful animal. The Voltrox was similar in size and shape to a large domestic cat found on the planet Earth. However, it had the added ability of being able to fly at great speed. Although formidable hunters, both the male and female mated for life and were surprisingly caring parents. A muffled, scraping sound, not unlike a scrapyard being turned over by a, a massive earth mover, was followed by a blinking white light beginning to form. As it grew brighter, the blue outline of an obsolete London Metropolitan Police Box appeared, then faded, then appeared again. Finally, everything stopped. Became silent. Neatly parked, 
although admittedly at a jaunty angle, the TARDIS had arrived on Necros. An hour later, as though to celebrate the time machine's safe materialization, it ceased snowing. Munching on the remains of a slice of nut roast, Perry left the TARDIS, descended the small mound on which it had landed, and moved towards a partially frozen pond. Muttering as she went, she was now miffed with everything, including her nutty breakfast. Once more, the doctor had brought her to a planet she did not want to visit. Worst of all, it was a place where most of the residents had passed away, a location where it was impossible to go out to a restaurant in the evening or go dancing on a Saturday night. She was even dressed in clothes she didn't want to wear. Deciding to abandon her breakfast, she threw it onto the pond and watched as it skittered across the ice, hit a bare patch of water and sank in a swirl of tiny bubbles and a gentle plop. Behind her, the doctor appeared in the doorway of the TARDIS, wearing a heavy blue cloak. How do I look? he said, sounding rather pleased with himself. Perry pulled at the neck of her snug blue winter coat. Better than I feel, she said. I spent all that time selecting this coat, and it's still too small. The doctor bounded down the small mound. You eat too much. Hardly, said Perry indignantly. I'd just given my nut roast to the fish. The doctor scowled. I'd warned you about feeding wild animals. Perry had heard this lecture many times before, and although she knew what the Time Lord said was true, she was at that moment more interested in changing her clothes. Can I go and find something different to wear? Certainly not, the Time Lord insisted. Blue is the official colour of mourning on Necros and women's legs must be covered at all times. It all sounds positively futile. It's polite, if not safer, to follow local customs. You should know that by now. I don't even know who this guy is we've come to see. Guy? Guy? The Time Lord was flabbergasted. You're talking about Professor Arthur Stengos, one of the greatest agronomists in the galaxy. I'm sorry, she said. Even more that he's dead. As they bickered, an enormous set of jaws broke the surface of the pond and spat out the nut roast. As the creature sank back into the depths, there was a loud explosion, and ice, water, and animal parts were hurled into the air. Poor old thing, said the doctor. That's what happens when you feed wildlife. Perry was horrified. That was my breakfast, she pointed out. If that's the type of indigestion you get, it's the last time I eat any of your nut roast. Concerned, she looked around. What else is here? The doctor pondered. Not much, he said at last. Maybe the odd Voltrox, the occasional Spielsnape? Perry grimaced. Do they bite? The Time Lord smiled. Only each other. Come on. Perry still wasn't very happy. This isn't fair, she complained. You said this was a civilized planet. The Time Lord shook his head. No, I said its technology was about a hundred years ahead of Earth's. For example, that gate you're about to climb over is made of Iradian steel, which is ten times stronger than titanium. Perry scrambled over the gate. Why waste a quality product on an old gate? Because they can, he said as he followed her. 
You said this would be a nice, peaceful visit, that there wouldn't be any mad axemen or creatures of the night. Did I really say that? Perry looked frustrated. You also said there would be friendly faces, people we could eat with, rather than the sort he preferred to dine on us. Well, seems I said a great deal. You always do, Doctor. The Time Lord looked suitably chastised. After we've finished here, he said, I promise to take you somewhere more interesting. Perry leaned forward and kissed the doctor affectionately on the cheek. Although she didn't believe him, she did accept that he was trying to be more accommodating. This was a great improvement on the monstrous character that had emerged after his recent regeneration. Perry set off behind the doctor towards the place he had called Tranquil Repose. She had been warned it would be a long walk, hence the hearty breakfast and heavy outdoor clothing. She was soon complaining about the cold and having to walk through the snow. Both were unaware that they were being followed by something quite startling in appearance and very dangerous. At the heart of tranquil repose was the Chamber of Peace and Harmony. This was where the departed, known as the Loved One, was placed prior to the final commitment to the posture for perpetual instatement. The chamber was a very special place and the only ornate area in the entire New Catacombs. Its elaborate stairway, called the Pathway to Heaven, led to a high dais, trimmed with gold leaf, Zimbrig hardwood and polished tin clavic, it was considered by more progressive design critics to be a serious masterpiece. But today, on a more practical level, the dais was being used by Sontana, President Vargos's principal wife, as her resting place prior to her full posture for perpetual instatement. With ultramarine blue being the official colour of mourning, the Chamber of Peace and Harmony was festooned with an array of beautiful blue blossoms known as Herba Baculum Vitae. With their shimmering blue flowers creating a mood of calm and serenity, the stems were interleaved with dozens of male peacock feathers imported at enormous expense from planet Earth. It was a wonder to behold, and had already been declared a posture for perpetual instatement to be remembered. And the man to make it work was Mr. Joshua Jobel. Short, rotund, and ignorant of sporting the worst hairpiece ever constructed, Jobel was T.R.'s chief embalmer. He was the man responsible for preparing and sending the loved ones to their place in what was called paradise. Believing himself to have a great sense of humour, Mr. J was, in fact, rude, crude, and totally unfunny. His other hobby, as he called it, was being a bit of a rake. Although grandly thinking of himself as a great lover, he lacked charisma, charm, and indeed looks. Rather than wooing the available young single women at tranquil repose, he preferred to pursue the married ones. This not only gave him an extra thrill, but also meant there was no commitment. All in all, 
Jobel was a thoroughly odious individual. Jobel had been born 51 years earlier in the star system Sifton 31. His father was a purveyor of meats and his mother a stage makeup artist. Somehow, Jobel had genetically inherited a fusion of their two professions, enabling him to slice and dice, much like a cosmetic surgeon, the loved one, to physical perfection, and then, with his mother's talent, return them to a thing of complete and utter beauty, often far more so than they had ever been in life. Today, Mr. J was fussing, as he had never fussed before. With a sea of hands, tweaking, pruning, titivating, spraying, rearranging, and assembling an enormous petal statue of Santana, the President's principal wife, the chamber was a hive of activity. Floors were being buffed, walls repainted, and massive stained-glass windows burnished until each and every pane radiated lush colours. Even the knobs on the boxes of ceremonial candles had been polished until they sparkled. This really was going to be the finest posture for perpetual instatement ever. Leading Jobel's unit of funerary attendants were Tarkis and Lilt, who seemed to be in as much a tizzy as the chief embalmer. Adding the magic of his nimble fingers, Lancelot Tarkis was putting the final flourishes to an exuberant composition of delightful foliage. Physically a large gentleman, he had spent many years of his life as a sergeant, fighting in the Peninsula Wars on the planet JJ-33. Although he had made little progress in building a military career, he had learned how to take charge of soldiers. Unfortunately, this skill was not easily transferable to the civilian world, and he had found it difficult to find other employment. That was until he was offered the position of Head of Security at Tranquil Repose. This sounded grander than it actually was, given that most of the potential culprits were dead or in suspended animation, awaiting cures for terminal diseases. As a consequence, the number of security personnel were very few, simply enough to deal with a difficult mourner who had perhaps imbibed too much Voxnik, a delicious but potent alcoholic beverage frequently drunk at final leave-takings. Outside soldiering, Mr. Tarkas's only other interest was horticulture, and, as some people found surprising, the delicacy of flower arranging. He loved nothing more than decorating the Chamber of Peace and Harmony for a major posture for perpetual instatement. Working alongside Mr. Tarkas was his colleague-in-arms and fellow security operative, August Lilt a former corporal who had also fought in the Peninsula Wars with Tarkis, he was a much slighter man in build. What was apparent when meeting the two was their total loyalty to each other. Born out of the time spent soldiering together, Lilt, who was born in Ealing, West London, in the democracy of England, planet Earth, had stowed away on a space freighter in search of adventure. Instead, he found a five-year prison sentence in the Tinclavic mines on the planet Raga, for what he claimed was a case of minor larceny. There he honed his skills in general villainy until he found his way to the Peninsula Wars on planet JJ-33, where he built an interest in ornithology, along with a friendship with Lancelot Tarkis. Whilst at war and capitalising on their combined appearance, Tarkis and Nilt 
performed for the troops a stage act, depicting the 1930s Hollywood Earth film comedians Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. Although there was a comic side to their nature and the troops enjoyed their performances, Tarkis and Lilt could also be very aggressive when required. Given the lack of hard crime, there was little for them to do as regards security at TR. They were therefore happy to operate a combined but divergent portfolio of security, floral design and the occasional impersonation of long-dead comic actors. Having swept his way past a sea of hard-working funerary attendants, Mr. Jobel jogged his way up the pathway to Heaven's staircase. On his arrival, he cast an expert eye over the President's principal wife, who was reclining serenely in a resting state on the dais. Slipping on his spectacles and taking a makeup stick from his breast pocket, he applied to the loved one's face several minute blobs of colour. In spite of having to undertake this minor repair, overall Mr. Jobel was delighted. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Messrs. Tarkas and Lilt looked up from their various flower decoration activities. You've excelled yourself, Mr. Tarkas. Absolutely lovely. And you too, Mr. Lilt. The two men looked worried. They weren't used to being praised by Mr. J. Attend me said Jobel. The two men sheathed their secateurs, and the trio descended the staircase. The great healer will hear of your outstanding work. Tarkas exchanged an awkward glance with Lilt. Neither man was certain he wanted the great healer to be reminded of their existence. I tell you, gentlemen, this will be the finest perpetual instatement I've ever made. Jobel glanced back at the dais providing the witch doesn't crumble. Not with you in charge, Mr. Jobel, said Tassenbeaker as she passed them on the staircase. That was supposed to be a joke, snapped Jobel without turning around. Tassenbeaker Brown was a newly qualified embalmer, great ambition and a huge natural talent. Unfortunately for her, she was also gauche, obsessive and madly in love with Jobel. I'm sorry, Mr. Jobel. Please forgive me, Mr. Jobel. That one thinks with her knuckles, muttered Jobel, as the three men reached the foot of the pathway to Heaven's staircase. Even worse, she's spoiling my moment. Don't worry, said Tarkis. This instatement will go down in funerary history. Mr. J nodded. Of course you're right, Tarkis. After this, everyone will demand our services. I'm sure but let's get this instatement over with first. Always the cautious one, Tarkis, but you're absolutely right. As they walked to the chamber's entrance, Mr. Tarkis stopped to adjust a bloom. You're such a perfectionist. As Jobel spoke, Tassenbeaker, who had been following, but not fully concentrating, almost crashed into the trio. Terrified his hairpiece had become dislodged, Jobel frantically felt to confirm the toupee was still properly in place. What's the matter with you, he demanded. You're always under my feet. I'm sorry, Mr. Jobel, she said, a tiny tear of embarrassment forming in her eye. I know I should take more care, Mr. Jobel. Mr. J scrunched his face into a heavy scowl. What is it you want? I've been sent to inform you that surveillance has picked up the presidential spacecraft in transit. 
Oh, sweet nimums, he blurted. I hope nothing untoward delays them. The President's principal wife has already started a froth, and we all know where that leads. Lilt switched on his most reassuring voice and leaned over to Jobel. Everything will be fine, he whispered. Remember, sir, we had the sarcophagus triple lead-lined. Yes, of course I did. And in the space of a few words, Jobel had transferred the success of the event from Lilt and Tarkis to solely himself. This was another unpleasant trait at which he excelled. With the news of the President's impending arrival whirring around inside his head, Mr. J firmly clapped his hands. Immediately, the funerary attendants ceased work and stood to attention. With the imminent arrival of President Vargas, he said grandly, I want to see you all in fresh tunics, full funerary makeup, and looking a lot livelier than usual. After all, he sniggered, we don't want the President in any doubt as to who is the corpse. Several people simpered at the joke, but without much conviction. Once the tittering had ceased, Jobel again clapped his hands and the team disappeared, keen to dress in their instatement finery. Realising the landing pad had yet to be inspected, Mr. J rushed after one of the disappearing attendants. He was looking for a volunteer. Although keen for the instatement to be perfect, he had no intention of shifting snow from the landing pad himself, or come to that, doing anything particularly arduous. With Tassenbeeka gazing longingly after Jobel, Lilt could not help recognise the look of love in her face. What are you staring at? she shouted. You're wasting your time there, Lilt sniggered. Mr Jobel isn't remotely interested in you. That's not true, shouted Tassenbeeka. You're a liar! All you do is contaminate something pure and lovely with horrible snide remarks. She quickly crossed to the chamber's entrance. Now get on with your work. Holding back the tears, she fled the area. Tuckis looked uncomfortable. That was a bit unnecessary, he said. She's got enough problems as it is. Taking a blossom from one of the displays, Lilt fastened it to Tuckis's tunic. Maybe, he responded but pursuing Jobel will only end badly. With him, it always does. Elsewhere, at tranquil repose, a man and woman dressed in the same blue tunics as the funerary attendants were illicitly working on the opening mechanism of a reinforced exterior door. The man was called Grigory, a 35-year-old medical doctor who had been struck off largely because of his preoccupation with alcohol. Standing next to him was Natasha, an athletic 25-year-old engineering student who'd acquired sidearm skills during her period of national service. These would prove useful after their break-in to tranquil repose. With a sudden loud clunk, the lock opened, allowing them to gain entrance. Picking up their weapons and various bags, they passed cautiously into a dark corridor. Natasha took out a small electronic gizmo from a pouch attached to her belt. She had activated it before entering the building, and its transmitted signal was cloaking all local security devices. At the moment, their presence in tranquil repose was undetected. But that wouldn't last for long. At the end of a corridor was an armed guard, 
straight and erect, protecting the portal between the old and new catacombs. Quickly, Grigory and Natasha slipped into a side passage to avoid detection. I must deal with the guard, she whispered, taking out her gun and switching it to kill. You're such an impetuous child, said Grigory. Hardly. We've come too far to turn back. Grigory lifted the flask hanging around his neck and took a large swig. Natasha was not pleased. This isn't the time to get drunk. I only wish I could. Fear seems to inhibit the effects of this particular stimulant. He took another gulp. Will you stop that? she demanded. Grigory looked sad. It's all right for you, he mumbled. You have the courage of youth, the determination of one committed to their cause. I also have a gun, Natasha said, thrusting it into his face. On the other hand, continued Grigory, your argument may not be subtle, but to a pragmatist such as myself, it is one I can fully understand. Natasha let a long, slow sigh. Look, I don't want to hurt you, Grigory, but we must get to my father's body, not just because it's my dad, but for the evidence the others are relying on. Finding it impossible to reclaim the bodies of loved ones for burial, a number of concerned relatives had formed an action group to unearth the reasons why. Natasha had volunteered to go to TR and discover what was happening and had taken Grigory as her medical expert. Given the rumours surrounding tranquil repose, she'd expected trouble. Since she was a proficient markswoman, she'd taken a gun as a precaution. Grigory thought for a moment. All right, I'll give you my full support. Natasha lowered her gun. Remember, you're here as medical adviser. I'm not expecting you to fight. Then as your medical adviser, said Grigory, can I ask you not to kill the guard? Natasha thought for a moment. Sure, she said, flicking the gun to stun. Grigory nodded his thanks. Now you can do something for me, said Natasha. Don't drink here, please. You've a fine mind, Grigory, but you're destroying it by drinking that stuff. I fear it may be too late, said Grigory, stretching his trembling hands before him. I'm uncertain whether they are shaking from fear or the delirium tremens. Natasha looked into his eyes. Are you still up for this? Grigory reluctantly nodded. She smiled. Then let's go. Bursting from the side passage, Natasha charged towards the startled guard. Raising his weapon to fire, he was brought down by Natasha's quicker response. Swiftly, Grigory hurried over to check the guard's pulse. But he didn't need to, as half the man's face was missing. In spite of everything, he said, looking up at Natasha, you managed to kill him. It happens, she snapped. My gun was set on stun, but my aim was off. A laser blast to the face would kill anything. But when it came to it, it was either him or me. Grigory smiled weakly. Funny. That's how I feel about alcohol. Passing through the interchange, they entered the new catacombs and the unknown fate that lay ahead. It had stopped snowing. The temperature had risen. Perry felt better about things. Footsteps scrunched in the snow as she and the doctor made their way through a verdantly challenged wood. Too cold in the winter, too hot in the summer, the climate had reduced the landscape to a sad sight. The flora a fraction of its potential. 
The only thriving vegetation was a plant bearing pretty blue flowers. Stopping by a particularly good-looking specimen, Perry bent to examine it more closely. This seems to be the only plant that grows here, she said, looking around. Herba baculum vitae, the doctor muttered in his best Latin. Perry thought for a moment. I know what that means, she exclaimed. It's the staff of life. The Time Lord nodded. That's right. Its common name is the weed plant. Gently, Perry started to ease one of the flowers from its stem. Looks sort of familiar. The doctor glanced over his young companion's shoulder to see what she was doing. It's very similar in food value to the soya plant on Earth. The Time Lord scratched his ear. Can't understand why it hasn't been cultivated. Rummaging in her pocket, Perry took out a clean linen handkerchief and placed the blue flower carefully within the folds of the fabric. For your collection? Perry nodded. When I get back to Earth, I've got to wow the college with something. My grades certainly won't. As she returned the hanky to her pocket, a sudden thought flashed across her mind. The flower is safe to touch, isn't it? The doctor smiled. Usually, he said teasingly but it'll need to be quarantined when we get back to Earth. As they set off, a dry twig snapped nearby. What was that? asked Perry. The doctor shrugged. Some small rodent? Still frightened by her earlier experience at the pond, Perry looked concerned. You mean with sharp teeth and rabid saliva? Not on Necros, the Time Lord smiled again. Well, at least not rabies. As he spoke, there was a sudden, loud roar, and a humanoid life-form dressed in rags broke cover. Half lumbering and half staggering, it lurched across the open ground towards the Doctor and Perry. Immediately, the Doctor released the clasp on his cloak and allowed the garment to fall to the ground. This gave him more freedom to deal with whatever might take place. With his other hand, he urged Perry to one side as the creature continued to advance. If that's a small rodent she said softly. I'd hate to see a large one. The figure continued towards them, bellowing loudly, its features now clearly visible. Its face and hands looked as though they had been burned by terrible heat, causing the skin to erupt into large, hideous blisters. The doctor removed his watch and chain from his waistcoat pocket. Holding up the watch, he allowed it to swing gently, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Come on, my friend, said the doctor gently. Be at peace with the world. It was an effect he had used many times before, and he was confident of its success. The creature paused, passively staring at the swinging watch, swinging watch, swinging watch but its expression was more of confusion than of subjection. There we are, the doctor said, trying to sound reassuring. Now, tell me what's happened to you. Unfortunately, his calming words didn't have the desired effect. Waving its arms wildly, the creature rushed at the Time Lord, catching him a hard blow and sending him crashing head over heels to the ground. It then fell on the doctor, and the two rolled and tumbled across the snow-covered terrain, the creature still roaring and screaming. 
Coming to a shallow embankment, they both slithered down its slope, throwing snow upwards into fluffy cumulus-like clouds, which then broke up and floated to the ground. At the bottom of the bank, the creature soon took control and pressed down hard on the doctor's throat with its stubby, mutilated thumbs. The Time Lord fought and struggled as best he could, but the creature was too strong. Saliva gushed from its mouth, half drowning the doctor. Perry had been frantically searching for a suitable object with which to fend off the creature. Picking up a club-like stick, she ran down the bank to where the two were still fighting and brought down the club hard on the creature's head. The first blow had little effect. Perry started to panic and began to hit it again and again. With the blows pounding onto its head, the creature began to weaken. Still desperate to save the doctor, Perry continued to lash out harder and harder until the creature gave in. It roared and, clutching its bleeding head, rolled off the Time Lord. Its energy gone, the creature had had enough. Gasping, choking and desperately trying to get his breath, the doctor pulled himself upright. Seeing that Perry was still beating the creature, the doctor painfully climbed to his feet and shouted, Perry, stop! You've won! I'm okay! Please put the club down! Pausing in mid-blow, Perry dropped the stick. On the ground lay the creature, its head covered in blood. Realising what she had done, Perry looked mortified. Help me, moaned the creature. Perry and the doctor crouched alongside the sad figure. Why did you attack us? asked the Time Lord. Your disc, your oscillating disc. You shouldn't have tried to condition me. The doctor cradled what was left of a human being in his arms. What's your name? I can't remember. My mind is totally unstable. The man smiled weakly at Perry. In many ways you've done me a great favour. It's not been easy existing in this form. It's hard to believe... I once looked like you, he panted. A whole person with a name, not mutilated like this. As a gesture of comfort, the doctor took hold of one of the man's hands. What happened? The great healer. The rasping voice was beginning to fade. I'm a product of his... Experimentation. The poor man was slipping into oblivion. Who is this great healer? The doctor urged. But it was too late. He was gone. A man without name and now without life. Perry's lower jaw began to quiver. I killed him, she said with a sob. I killed him and he forgave me. Why did he have to be so nice? He understood that you were saving my life, that you had no choice. He was out of control. As Perry started to cry, the doctor placed a comforting arm around her shoulder. What about the poor man's body? She blurted. Let's get to tranquil repose. We can report what happened there.
Chapter 2 Elsewhere in TR, a radio station was broadcasting music, current affairs, features and dedications to a very special audience via a sensory link. The listeners were in suspended animation, awaiting medical developments that would fully restore them to their former active healthy selves. The station's output was supposed to be a lifeline, keeping them informed, entertained and generally stimulated. No one was certain how effective this service was, as no one had yet returned to life with a critique or a review of its output. The radio station was run by a man simply called The DJ, also known as Derek Johnson, but then his audience didn't really care what he was called. To facilitate his performance, the DJ had the habit of dressing in clothes of a given period, mostly in fashions from the planet Earth. This was predominantly the burgeoning rock-and-roll scene of the 1950s onwards. Today, the DJ was sporting what could be described as a hippie style of dress. He had waist-length, dark brown hair, copious strings of coloured beads around his wrists and neck, very tight blue jeans, and a yellow granddaddy T-shirt. He was also wearing correspondent shoes and a bowler hat, which suggested he didn't always get the look exactly right. Almost all of the DJ's broadcasts came from a small studio, deep in the bowels of the new catacombs. It was a tiny room with a huge multi-screen at one end. This displayed via TR's security cameras images of general activities throughout the complex, including coverage of the areas beyond its great wall. In other words, the DJ could see and go more or less anywhere he wanted with what he called his vidi eyes. To select and broadcast music, the DJ had his own personal playlist, which he could call up instantly. This allowed him to concentrate on his own special style of presentation. Seated in a large, comfortable chair, headphones clamped to his ears and an ultra-tiny microphone snaking around his cheek, the DJ was about to broadcast in the accent of his adopted persona. Hey, you guys! I say, hey, you guys, this is the DJ with a broadcaster and all broadcasts! This was his usual opening patter. Via his vidi eyes, he could see on one of the monitors the Doctor and Perry walking with difficulty across an undulating snowy field. Suddenly, Perry tripped and was sent sprawling. The Doctor quickly helped her back to her feet. Annoyed she had tumbled, Perry brushed away the snow from her uncomfortable blue coat. Hey, you guys, I say, hey, you guys, vidi this. For those of you who are appreciative of the humanoid female form, we have a maiden in distress, he bubbled with pleasure. That's right, a maiden in distress. How many of those do we get around here? In fact, how many do we get anywhere? I'm sure this is a special treat you guys can all enjoy, but be careful, he then spoke quietly into his microphone. I want no complaints about overloaded ventilators, wild fibrillation and high-octane blood pressure, and that's just from our service crew, he laughed crudely. But seriously, guys, take it easy. A keen fan of Earth rock and roll, the DJ had started his career while attending the Lowry Institute of Technology in the star system Sigma-18, studying cosmic acoustics. He then moved into the clubs around the third zone when he was 19, playing his beloved music. 
Whilst travelling to expand his musical knowledge, he was caught by a band of space pirates and made to entertain the crew of their battlecruiser. His playlist did not go down well with his captors, keen followers of glam rock and, rather surprisingly, Dame Vera Lynn. Desperate to get rid of him and his vinyl, the pirates abandoned him on a small planetoid in the Delta JJ sector of the sixth zone of the galaxy. Picked up a few years later by a delivery freighter from Kara's kitchen, he was given a ride to Necros, where he eventually met Lancelot Tarkis. This encounter led him to being employed as a radical DJ playing the music he loved, 1950s and 60s rock and roll. Adoring his playlist, a potential loved one bestowed a very generous bequest on Tranquil Ripos on the proviso that the DJ remained to play rock and roll for as long as he wanted. Such was the sum. The great healer had no alternative other than to accept all the controlling conditions of the agreement. Unfortunately, the loved one-to-be died of a massive heart attack brought on by the malfunction of his life support system, leaving the DJ in a highly vulnerable position. Without his benefactor, but with the growing hatred of the great healer, the DJ realised that his days were numbered, and it would not be long before a Dalek came to visit him one dark, moonless night with thoughts of death. In a laboratory deep in tranquil repose, the great healer was watching the DJ on screen. If you had never seen him before, his appearance would have been startling. His head floated in a spherical tank of clear liquid. In turn, this was mounted on top of a white and silver square metal plinth which contained the life support system so vital to him. Appearing to have no torso or limbs, the great healer was totally immobile, except for his head, which unnervingly could swivel in a 360-degree arc. On closer inspection, the head belonged to none other than Davros, creator of the Daleks, the most evil being in the universe. Hey there, especially Casket 973812, broadcaster DJ. Remember, you have a faulty adrenaline modulator, and you know what that means. Shut the fool up, snapped Davros. I obey! Squawked Davros's latest creation, a gold sphere Dalek. As it did, the image on the screen flipped from the DJ to the Doctor and Perry making their way through the snow-covered terrain. It is the Doctor! intoned the gold sphere Dalek. Excellent, purred Davros. My lure has worked. I shall order Daleks to apprehend him. No, said Davros. It will give me the greater pleasure to watch his own curiosity deliver him directly to me. Davros was interrupted by a sensor flashing on one of the laboratory's consoles. Responding to the signal, the Daleks' eye stalk swung round and fixed on the display. Disturbance recorded on level seven. Show me, screeched Davros. On a second screen, an image appeared showing Natasha and Grigory 
stealthily making their way along a corridor. Inform Tarkis, said Davros, there are body snatchers in the catacombs. I obey, responded the Dalek. This Dalek was part of a new generation created by Davros. They were supposedly more intuitive, better skilled at reading emotional situations, and equipped with the potential to levitate. With his new breed, Davros once more believed he would conquer all his enemies, and indeed the universe. To celebrate this ambition, the casing of his new Daleks was brilliant white, with golden spheres adorning the lower section. Although the TR staff had become used to seeing out and about the gold sphere Daleks, they were unaware of the true identity of the great healer and his plans for them and the complex. In the DJ studio, Procol Harum's song A Whiter Shade of Pale could be heard. As the diamond stylus caressed the vinyl disc at a pucker 33 and one-third RPM, the music poured from its grooves and into the imagination and sensibilities of the listeners. The atmosphere was magical and pure 1960s. A time of flower power, free love and amazing music. The DJ, silent for the moment, allowed the music to waft over him and dream of what Earth must have been like at that time. He imagined a place where a free spirit could create, develop and thrive. Even if it were only a fantasy, the DJ wished he could at least work in a place without great healers, Daleks and facilities like tranquil repose. The DJ decided he preferred a place where people died and stayed dead. In his laboratory, Davros watched attentively as an attendant dissected a human brain. The organ was being prepared for use in a complex form of dialysis. He hoped this would maintain the equilibrium within what little was left of his body. He was entirely reliant on others to carry out his research, the most essential being the development of his new breed of Dalek. As the dialysis process continued, Davros noticed on one of the security screens Tarkis still at work in the Chamber of Peace and Harmony. Why is Tarkis not dealing with the body snatchers? demanded Davros. He does not respond, bleated the gold sphere Dalek. His communicator is disconnected. Davros's face crumpled into a look of wrinkled rage. Tasambika must order Tarkis to apprehend the intruders at once. I obey. And then get me Kara. Handling the vinyl was almost a sacred act, a process that took the DJ back to his beloved 1950s and 1960s. Carefully returning the much-loved A Whiter Shade of Pale Disc to its sleeve, he flicked a switch on another turntable and the Mamas and Papas song Monday, Monday began to play. Perfection. As the song continued, he noticed on one of his screens two intruders carrying weapons, moving quickly through a door they had just forced open. Whoa, heavy! Hey there, you guys, we have armed body snatchers in the building! Looks like somebody could be in for a sudden defrosting! 
But seriously, folks, I realize how hard it must be resting in suspended animation. But let me provide assurance that you're perfectly safe with the DJ to cheer everyone up, he continued to bluster. I think it's time to cool the pace with something I know you all love. There's nothing more soothing than a dedication or two. Oh, yeah! The DJ rummaged through a pile of papers strewn across a small table next to him. As he searched the dedications, he threw into the air those he discarded. These fluttered like a kaleidoscope of butterflies around the room before landing gracefully on the studio floor. You know, guys, I get as much of a kick out of reading these as I know you do from hearing them. Meanwhile, to set the mood, here's the best. Elvis Presley's A Blue, A Swede, A Shoes. With the vinyl in place, the DJ operated the start button and music gushed into the ether. As the song belted across the studio, the DJ leapt out of his chair, ran to a large cupboard, and threw open the doors. Inside, like a fancy dressing-up box, were all sorts of different costumes. After quickly disrobing from his hippie attire, the DJ took out a leather motorbike kit and started to pull it on. Glancing in a full-length mirror attached to the back of the wardrobe door, he purred with satisfaction. One of his quirky idiosyncrasies was to wear outfits to match the period of the music. For him, there was nothing better. So, adorned in leather, he spoke into his microphone. Hey there, said the DJ as the song ended, his accent now pure New York Bronx, with just a tinge of Liverpool, UK. I say, hey there. The DJ lowered himself into his chair in front of the record deck and monitor screens. I say, hey there. Casket 816, or should I say, hi, George. This is the DJ with a very special message for you, my friend. I say, get down. Congratulations, my man. Your dear wife, who is still very much alive, would like to send her fondest and sincerest love. Yeah! She still misses you, my man. She misses you a heck of a lot. She would also like to reassure you on this very special day... Her every waking hour is spent administering the research fund, which you set up to find a cure for Beck syndrome, that oh-so-dreadful disease which took you from her side. I say get out. I say get down. So, George, it's from her heart to your heart, celebrating your long life. Here's some good old 1950s earth time rock and roll. Yeah, go for it. Switching off the microphone, the DJ operated the volume control, and Jerry Lee Lewis's great balls of fire echoed out of every public address speaker in the TR complex. Well, George, you've got a wife and a half there. His New York accent gone and his Liverpool one now to the fore, the DJ continued quietly to himself. They found a cure for Beck syndrome twenty years ago. The DJ pondered for a moment. Still be interested to know what she's really doing with the money. Looking for some fresh images to broadcast, the DJ flipped back to the screen showing Perry and the Doctor, still making their way across the snow-covered landscape. Hey there, said the DJ, once more with a Bronx accent. I say, hey, the maiden in distress is coming this way. Tassambika entered the Chamber of Peace and Harmony where the team was still busy putting the final touches to the principal wife's posture for perpetual instatement. Pushing her way through the crowded room, 
she eventually reached Tarkis and Lilt, who were making further enhancements to one of the larger floral displays. It seemed important to them that one flower stem should be raised whilst another three were inserted into the arrangement. They were in their element and totally engrossed. The duo was not pleased to see her. The great healer is annoyed that your communicator is switched off, said Tazambika. Is it? Tarkis turned to Lilt. Did you know that? Lilt shrugged. Why should I? It seems everyone else does. Tarkis then turned to Tazambika. Do you know? he asked. She was furious. You are both in a great deal of trouble, she said angrily. There are body snatchers in Sector 7. Did you know that? asked Tarkis. Lilt cocked his head thoughtfully. No, did you? All right, play the fool, Tazambika bellowed. But they probably walked in right under your noses. Did you see anyone? Tarkis couldn't leave the foolish joke alone. No, did you? Tazambika exploded. Go on, enjoy yourselves while you can, she roared. But meantime, find the intruders! She stormed off, irritated that she had allowed Tarkis and Lilt to get the upper hand yet again. That's another fine mess you've got me into, said Tarkis. The two men shuffled out of the chamber, along the corridor and towards the endless passageways of the old catacombs. By this stage, such was their apathy towards the intruders, they didn't even bother to draw sidearms. More concerning for them was being stopped by one of Davros's shiny new gold sphere Daleks and being asked for ID. Was that thing on guard duty? asked Tarkis once the Dalek had gone. Lilt nodded. Then it's worse than I thought, said Tarkis. All that's supposed to be in these catacombs are several million stiffs in various states of artificial preservation. So why suddenly the extra security? I'm more to the point, why, as head of security, wasn't I informed? Milt shrugged. I reckon there is something else going on. In his laboratory, deep in the old catacombs, Davros watched Lilton Tarkis on a screen whilst waiting to speak to Kara. You know too much, Tarkis. He should be exterminated! Chipped in the gold sphere Dalek. Davros swiveled his head in his life support system to face the Dalek. Is extermination all you can ever suggest? I am programmed for high intellectual performance! Then use it to fetch the woman Tassambika, he ordered. Her attitude appeals to me. Yours does not. I obey! And as Tarkis and Lilt might be dangerous, put them under close surveillance, Davros added. With that warning, the gold sphere Dalek clicked and clapped for a second or two as it made its way out of the laboratory. It was now eye-searingly obvious to Davros that his new generation of hate-filled creatures were in need of further fine-tuning. After a long, arduous jog, Natasha and Grigory turned cautiously into aisle 8479, located in the Hall of Sunny Memories. Checking for guards, they moved past numerous units, each containing a loved one in suspended animation. This is definitely the aisle, said Natasha. 
My dad's in Unit 3092. Gregory's still puffing after the jog came to a sudden halt. Well, this is Unit 3078. Natasha ran ahead until she reached the number she wanted. Bending down, she examined the sliding unit's insulated door. We don't have much time, she said. There are security cameras everywhere, probably most of them watching us. Grigory was confused. I thought we had a cloaking device, he asked, removing the satchel from his back. We're out of range. It's no longer effective. Pulling out an electronic gizmo from the bag, Grigory crouched down and set about opening the unit's lock. Why did I ever let you talk me into doing this, he muttered. Get on with it. A bit of tomb robbing is one thing. Did we have to kill that guard? Look, I don't want to be here any more than you do, but that's my father in there. She pointed at the unit door. I want to know why the courts refused to return his body. She was now jittery. So please hurry up. You can't rush this sort of thing, said Grigory. Look, if I open that door too soon, the molecular structure of the body will break down and your poor old dad will turn into a pool of liquid protein. He inserted the gizmo into the lock. Even if I were confident I could reconstitute him, we don't have a suitable vessel into which he could be ladled. But Natasha was tired of his wittering. If we don't succeed, my father's already dead. Now get the door open. Seated at a beautifully carved desk, Kara was talking to the great healer via a holographic screen. Fluttering next to her like a demented ostrich was her flamboyantly loyal secretary, Justin Vogel. Although his title was that of secretary, he did far, far more. He lived vicariously through Kara's power and position in the galaxy. Every one of her achievements added to his authority, which he abused on a regular basis. Some said he harboured ambitions of romance with his employer. This wasn't true. It was merely a facade, a means to an end to facilitate his own ambitions. Some would say he was Machiavellian in the skill he practised, always scheming and manipulating situations for his own benefit. But in reality, he was just an old-fashioned scoundrel. It's all very well to make these demands, great healer, said Kara with excessive bonhomie but you already take most of the profits my factories make. The great healer was all smiles and unctuousness. I created the product you manufacture, he said. I have a right to the money, especially when it is put to such good use. Kara wasn't so certain. I'm well aware of that, great healer. I would willingly sell the bones of Vogel if it would help your cause. Vogel turned on an extra layer of obsequiousness, and I would give them willingly. Kara smiled girlishly. You see how devoted we are? But you'd get very little for him, dead or alive, and I would be without a secretary. As I'm sure you know nowadays, good secretaries are very hard to find. The great healer grimaced, the guilt of centuries stained on his teeth. I do not wish to hear any more of your prattling tongue. He hesitated, aware of the forcefulness of his comment. Forgive me, he said apologetically. I want... No. I need more money. 
I cannot complete my research without it. We'll do our best. I'm sure Vogel can engage in a little more creative accountancy on your behalf. I already do, madam, Vogel replied sycophantically. I'm a past master of the double entry. Then you must make it triple, Kara flustered. You heard what Davros said. He needs the money. The great healer reacted immediately, his face crashing into a hideous snarl. Do not call me by my real name on an open channel. Kara went into a high fly-flap. I'm so sorry, great healer. Such is my enthusiasm for your cause. My tongue sometimes speaks what my mind would not dare to think. Please accept my apologies. Davros tried to smile in a light-hearted way, but only managed a nasty smirk. I would sooner accept your cash. And in a combined flurry of false nervous laughter, the image of Davros faded from the screen. Silence descended on the room. We can't go on like this, said Kara eventually. Davros is bleeding me dry, and President Vargos's investigation into the synthetic food industry may prove insidiously compromising. Indeed, madam. Tell me, Vogel, why are the captains of industry never left alone to create employment and make money for society? After all, it's the thing we do best. It might have something to do with so many of us being dishonest, madam. Kara smiled knowingly. Always with an astute observation, Vogel. And because we sometimes employ assassins to provide answers to our problems. A magenta-coloured light flashed twice on a console, and Vogel smiled. I think the answer to the problem of Davros and President Vargos has arrived, madam. Orsini? Delicious. He waits in the foyer with his squire. Offer them refreshment, Vogel, and then show them in. On first seeing the perimeter wall to tranquil repose, Perry's spirits had risen. Beyond it, she hoped, was somewhere warm, dry, and comfortable. On arriving at the wall, her opinion changed. It was enormous, she observed. Positively medieval. A stone wall like no other. Now what? she asked. This wall appears to go on forever. It can't, said the doctor, eyeing it up and down. There's no door, Perry said. I told her we should have come by TARDIS, Doctor. The doctor looked the wall up and down again. There must be a door, he reasoned. No door, no letterbox. No letterbox, no post. Your logic's impeccable, Doc, but for one thing, the people in there are dead. Not all of them, Perry. Some are resting in suspended animation. Maybe, but there's still no door. The doctor thought for a moment. Oh, well, only one thing left. Go back? She said eagerly, turning to leave. Certainly not, said the Time Lord, huffing and puffing in anticipation of what he was about to do. We go over the top. Perry's face collapsed. Hey, you are joking, aren't you? But he wasn't. The body of the guard killed earlier by Natasha had been loaded onto a gurney and brought to one of Jobel's preparation rooms. Being an unusual event, several of the attendants had gathered round, keen to hear what had happened. 
This created something of a commotion, drawing Mr. Jobel from his office. If you wish to gossip, there is a restroom provided. Tassenbeaker, who was part of the group, stepped forward. I'm sorry, Mr. Jobel. Oh, I might have guessed you'd be here. Someone has been murdered, she said. It's a pity it couldn't have been you. Mortified, Tassenbeaker's face collapsed. Oh, I do wish you'd get used to my sense of humour, said Jobel, attempting to pacify. I'm sorry, Mr. Jobel. Jobel pointed to the gurney where the dead guard lay. Why are you taking him to my preparation room? That is not the mortuary. The bullet badly damaged his face, Mr. Jobel. He'll require cosmetic embalming. Don't you ever listen, said Jobel through clenched teeth. I have the President's wife out there, and I can tell you she's more active now than she ever was when alive. I'm sorry, Mr. Jobel. I wish you'd stop apologising said Jobel, entering his preparation room and crossing to a small, wall-mounted mirror. I'm sorry, Mr. Jobel. Mr. J fiddled with his hairpiece until he noticed Tassenbeaker staring at him and moved back to the gurney. I haven't got time to deal with him. Perhaps I could, said Tassenbeaker, following him. Jobel went purple around the edges of his ego. I beg your pardon? I am a graduate with special honours in facial reconstruction and have studied your methods very closely. The way you get under my feet, I sometimes think a little too closely. Jobel pulled back the sheet covering the dead guard's body. The face looked awful, the laser beam having entered his left eye and taken out half the back of his head. He certainly is a mess. I suppose you can't make him any worse. Tazenbeaker was delighted. Oh, thank you, Mr. Jobel. Now get away from here. Certainly, Mr. Jobel, and thank you, Mr. Jobel. You're too kind, Mr. Jobel. Oh, yes, before you start hacking him around. The great healer wants to see you, Jobel said, looking up at a security camera. Although why I should be the messenger, I really don't know. In his laboratory, Davros was looking at Jobel and Tassenbeaker on one of his screens. You are a fool, Jobel, he muttered. I have offered you immortality, but you are content simply to embalm the dead. Ratcheting up to a further outburst, he bellowed, And soon, Jobel, you will join them! Chapter 3 it had taken longer than Gregory had expected to open the unit containing Natasha's father. Through the frozen, fog-like vapour, they could see what looked like a body. You are mistaken, said Gregory. Natasha tugged at the body wrap. Unwrap him! Are you sure you want to see this? There's no other way of proving he's actually here. Reluctantly, Gregory started to unzip the bag... Then he rummaged around the shredded gauze protecting the body's head. The frozen vapour made it painful to work as the blistering cold cut into his hands. After all this, he'd better be here, he said. As he pulled away the final packing, his wish was denied. Lying in the unit was not the body of Professor Arthur Stengos, but that of a mannequin. You see? 
Natasha exclaimed. They have taken him! Without warning, Tarkis and Lilt appeared at the hall's entrance, accompanied by two guards. Hold it! Tarkis shouted. Instead of complying, Grigory and Natasha snatched up their equipment and were gone. Back at the huge wall, the fun continued. With his hands tightly clasped, his knees bent, the doctor was braced to lift Perry. This is so embarrassing, said his companion, as she thrust a foot into the doctor's cupped hands. How do you think I feel? I'm a 900-year-old time lord, he steadied himself with a lift. Not much dignity in scrambling over a wall like a small boy on a scrumping spree. Just don't drop me said a concerned Perry. Drop you! The amount you weigh, I'll be lucky if I can lift you! Watch it, Porky! Perry launched herself off the ground, the heel of her boot skimming the doctor's face as she groped for the top of the wall. As she flayed around, there was a sudden cry from the doctor. Oh, no! he yelped. Perry instinctively knew what had happened. Oh, I'm so sorry, she said apologetically. I didn't intend that to happen! The doctor threw his folded cloak onto the top of the wall and scrambled up after it. That's all right, he said, sounding a little surly. Perry was now sitting upright on the top of the wall. I wouldn't have had it happen for the world. Forget it, I rarely use it, said the doctor, now straddling the wall. But I know how fond of it you were. Fiddling in his waistcoat pocket, the doctor produced his pocket watch. He emptied the remnants of the inner mechanism onto his cloak, which he then dropped to the other side of the wall. I shall learn to live without it, he said sulkily. Perry was on the verge of tears, this being another incident in a day of unhappy events. I'll buy you a new one. On Necros? Well, it wouldn't have happened if we'd been able to find a door. The doctor jumped from the wall, leaving Perry to struggle down by herself. Picking up his cloak, the Time Lord strode off. Wait for me, Perry called after him. Doctor! Now deeper in the catacombs, Natasha and Grigory had managed to lose their pursuers. They were hiding behind a large cooler used for stabilising the loved ones who were in suspended animation. Where do we go now? demanded Grigory. Natasha shrugged. We can't go back. They'll be waiting for us. Grigory didn't like where the conversation was going. We have no choice. We have to go on, muttered Natasha, further into the old catacombs. Grigory was horrified. There's no future down there, he protested. Natasha removed a folded strip of plasticized paper from her pocket and held it up. You should have studied your map a little closer. I'll have you know I stayed up half the night, he said, and the lack of alternative exits depressed me no end. Well, if you'd studied it with a clearer mind, you would have noticed there is a service elevator to every level. Grigory looked surprised. Once things quietened down, she continued, we can take the lift out of here. Meanwhile, all we need is somewhere to hide. As they moved deeper into the catacombs, the atmosphere grew more and more creepy. Dark, sinister shadows lurked everywhere, and Grigory expected a Dalek to glide into view, gun blazing. Instead, two men pushing an empty gurney appeared, and the duo were forced to take cover in an adjacent laboratory. 
The room was lit by an eerie, blood-red light, and flowing water could be heard. Moving further into the area, they saw what looked like a series of enormous fish tanks standing in a row, each loaded with a gooey, viscous substance. Closer viewing revealed a dozen pulsating human brains in what looked like an incubation chamber. Even though Grigory had trained as a medical doctor, he found the sight disturbing and macabre. Natasha scrunched up her face. Are they human? Grigory nodded. We're not going to get out of here alive, are we? He was beginning to wind himself up. I also have a terrible fear I'll die begging for mercy. Pride isn't important at the moment of death. It is to me. Suddenly another earth-shattering thought flopped into his brain. They won't torture us, will they? You're becoming morbid. Instant death doesn't bother me. It's the long, lingering kind I'm worried about. You forget I'm a doctor. When they slip me open, I'll know the name and function of each and every organ that plops out. A tiny smile formed on Natasha's lips. Then at least you won't die in ignorance, she muttered. Davros watched Natasha and Grigory on a screen. Inform Takis, heard Davros malevolently. I have found the body snatchers. The gold sphere Dalek turned to leave. I obey! As it went, a loud buzzing noise emanated from its lower section. Not another glitch, thought Davros. Kara will need to find a lot more cash to eliminate these unexpected malfunctions. Looking for somewhere more practical to hide, Natasha and Grigory entered an adjacent room. The way tools were scattered around suggested it was some sort of workshop. In one corner was a spacesuit fitted with a thruster pack in the process of being repaired. In another, a life support system that looked as though it had been savagely smashed with a hammer. In a third corner stood the oddest item of all. It was a Dalek, complete with gun, probe and eye stalk, but it seemed constructed from near-transparent glass. As the duo cautiously moved closer to examine it, Natasha took out her laser. They were now able to see the mutated remains of a human inside the glass Dalek. The only recognisable part was a head mounted within a cage-like dome. As they looked in horror, a bloodshot eye flicked open. The thing was alive. Natasha, the head moaned, its voice weak and distorted. Natasha, it knows you, said a confused Grigory. Natasha felt sick. He's my father, she said. This is Professor Arthur Stengos, muttered a horrified Grigory. Although confined, the man in the glass Dalek casing nodded. It was as though his brain had split from his skull and grown into a throbbing mass of offal. There was also a candy-floss-like sea of spume lapping around his head. The mess that had been his skull in turn was encased behind a mesh of metal bars.
Still dressed in his leather rock-and-roll tribute kit, the DJ, having overridden the security system, had observed everything that had taken place with Natasha and Grigory in the workshop. Hi now, listen, you guys! Although the DJ was once more using an American accent, its cadence had slipped from that of New York to South Carolina. Hey, I say, you guys, I don't want to alarm you, but there's some pretty weird stuff going on. He moved forward as if to confidentially address the camera in his studio. As you know, we have body snatchers in the complex. It gets even creepier when the word out there is the snatchers have been outsnatched. He ran his fingers through Elvis-style hair. So if any of you guys are able, his voice built into a melodramatic crescendo, lock yourselves in your caskets now, snap down those bolts, otherwise you could find yourselves on the outside going, who knows where? His voice exploded into a wild, uncontrollable cackle whilst he waved his fingers in a childlike impression of being a ghost. On the screen, Davros watched the DJ's antics, one voyeur observing another. Suddenly, everyone sees and knows too much. As though to emphasise his anger, his head swung wildly in a 360-degree turn. With a silver wedge of metal where his teeth once were, Natasha's father struggled to explain what had happened. My mind has been conditioned to serve a new master. Natasha was becoming frustrated. So you keep saying, but who is it? I can't remember, child. Why not? You remembered who I am? Professor Stengloss looked very sad. You are my daughter. How could I forget? Why have they done this to you? Without warning, her father's voice adopted a strangulated Dalek intonation. We are to serve a new order to become the supreme beings. An anguished cry of help escaped the inflected rant. Help me, child. What can I do? Natasha said desperately. But it was too late. Stengos was in the full grip of another rant. Must multiply! The seed of the Daleks must be supreme! We must conquer and destroy all those who resist the power of the Daleks! For another moment, his sane mind broke free. Kill me, child! I can't! She despaired. Stengos continued with the tirade. It is our duty to eradicate all those who wish to pollute the purity of the Dalek race. For a moment his mind was free. If you ever loved me, Natasha, kill me, child. Kill me! Natasha's eyes welled up with tears and her heart was about to break. How can I kill my own father? I'll do it, said Grigory. No, screamed Natasha. Stengos was once more slipping back under the control of the Dalek conditioning. It is vital that the Daleks are supreme in all things! Natasha pointed the gun at her father, set the laser to kill and fired. The casing of the glass Dalek exploded, 
sending not only shards flying across the area, but also the sad remains of Professor Arthur Stengos, once the greatest agronomist in the galaxy. Completely traumatised by what had happened, Natasha ran from the area. I've got to get out of here! Grigory, equally perturbed, followed her. But it wasn't going to be that easy. As they left the workshop, Tarkis lilted two gold sphere Daleks were waiting. Going somewhere? Tarkis demanded. Lilt grabbed Natasha's sidearm and hit her in the stomach with it, and then did the same to Grigory. As the intruders hit the floor, Lilt took out a switchblade, snapped it open, and placed its sharp edge against Natasha's cheek. Enough, ordered Tarkis. But Lilt was keen to harm her. What about the guard they killed, he said. I must mark her. I said stop. Tarkis glared at the intruders. Take them to the cell. As a mark of respect, Kara got to her feet as Vogel escorted two men into her office. One of them was tall, elegant and dressed head to toe in black leather. He sported a goatee beard and his hair was gathered in a neat pigtail. He carried an ornate walking stick that wasn't so much to steady his balance as for the deadly metal spike concealed in its tip. On the front, left-hand side of his tunic was a discreet medallion made from polished black tinclavic. On it, written in elegant, terolyptal script were the words Knight of the Grand Order of Oberon. It was an insignia awarded to very few warriors. My dear Orsini, said Kara, as she extended her hand in greeting, or should I call you Grand Master? The man in black stood impassive. Simply call me Orsini. I would have greeted you on your arrival, Kara continued, but a sudden crisis in the process department diverted me. Please accept my sincerest apologies. Orsini gave a small bow of his head. It is rare for someone in my profession to meet a client on their home territory. Assassins like debt collectors are rarely welcome. When we are allowed onto the premises, it's usually through the side door. How charming, said Kara, without any real feeling. He's a philosopher. Vogel shifted into his highest gear of unctuousness. I sensed it at once, madam. Without warning, a grubby paw, like an eagle diving onto its prey, snatched Kara's soft white hand and dragged it to a pair of the wettest, sloppiest lips ever to grace a human face. The mouth belonged to Bostock, the second man to enter the room. In contrast to the elegance of Orsini, he was dressed in a shabby khaki uniform, much like that worn by First World War soldiers on Earth the exception being the steel parry guard covering his left forearm. His teeth were rotten, his face unshaved, and his hair untouched by a tonsorial artiste in many a decade. This is Bostock, my squire, said Orsini. Lady? Bostock's lips were still locked gloopily onto Kara's hand. I'm afraid the only philosophy practiced by Bostock is to do as little about his personal hygiene as possible, Orsini went on. And why not? 
Carl smarmed. The odour of nature has a charm all its own. Bostock nodded sagely. My very sentiments, lady. He may smell like rotting flesh, said Orsini, but he is an excellent squire. Indeed. Cara was now almost gagging on Bostock's stench as she edged away. A drink, perhaps, Vogel suggested. The offer was declined with a shake of Orsini's head. A chair. We prefer to stand, said Orsini. Of course, Cara burbled. As men of action, you must be like coiled springs, alert, ready to pounce. Orsini shook his head. Nothing so romantic, he said. I have an artificial leg with a faulty hydraulic valve. When seated, the valve is inclined to jam. Vogel shrugged his shoulders. Maybe one of our engineers could repair it. That offer was also rejected. I prefer the inconvenience. Constant reminder of my mortality. Again, Kara discharged a broadside of hyperbole. You are a master craftsman. I feel humbled in your presence. No wonder your reputation is like a fanfare throughout the galaxy. Embarrassed, Orsini eyed the toes of his well-polished boots. I take little joy from my work, he said. That I leave to Bostock. He paused for a moment. The truth is that I prefer the contemplative life. It isn't always easy to find, so to cleanse my conscience... I give what fee I receive to charity. Oh, such commitment, Kara chirped. Indeed, you are the man for our cause. Kara then turned her enthusiasm down a notch. As you must know, our factories are dedicated to producing a high-protein concentrate. This we sell to developing planets for such a ridiculously low price, it embarrasses and frustrates my accountants. Vogel picked up a transparent container of the manufactured food and handed it to Orsini. Taking the box, Orsini nodded. I am aware that this product has eliminated famine from the galaxy. Bostock screwed up his face. Tastes horrible, though. That our scientists are working to improve, growled Vogel defensively. Indeed, said Kara, as everything we do is to improve the quality of life for others. Vogel nodded earnestly. If only we could be left to get on with our work, madam. There was another well-timed pause before Kara glided into her closing speech. As in any paradise, my dear Orsini, there is always a serpent. Our malignancy is a particularly vile one, said Vogel, hitting his cue right on time. He calls himself the Great Healer, said Kara pretentious title for a decidedly evil man. He holds this planet in a grip of fear and bleeds my factories dry with his constant demands for money. His name is Davros, Vogel spat. Bostock's face lit up. I know him, master. He sits like a spider at the heart of this planet, said Kara, using the money he extorts from us to rebuild his disgusting creatures of hate. Daleks! What a kill Davros would be, master. Like the old days, Bostock, Orsini said quietly. A crusade against evil. 
Destroy Davros, purred Kara, and your name will become a legend for all time. Orsini was excited by what was being said. You have no idea how long I have waited for a noble cause. To once again kill for honour, glory and the truth. Then you will do it? Orsini's face glowed like a thousand-watt lamp. Of course. The snow still scrunched underfoot as the Doctor and Perry finally reached their destination. There you are, Perry, said the Doctor, pointing at a long row of pillars. The concourse of tranquil repose. Perry glanced at them. Doesn't sound very alien. The doctor puckered his lips. What did you expect? Something more ethereal? I mean, tranquil repose is the sort of name we come up with in the States. North America doesn't have the monopoly on bad taste. Perry smiled in agreement as they reached the first pillar. Here the snow had been swept clear, revealing a wide, paved pathway glistening in the sunlight. It's just the way you talked about your friend, said Perry. I didn't expect to find him in a place with such a tacky name. The Time Lord pondered for a moment. To be perfectly honest, neither did I. Arthur Stengos wasn't the type to artificially extend his life. To hang around in the vain hope that someone might come up with a cure for the organic breakdown of his body wasn't him at all. Now you tell me, said an irritated Perry. Why didn't you say that before? Suddenly things were beginning to fall into place. I knew there had to be a reason why we materialise in the middle of nowhere. I'm simply being cautious, said the doctor. Or would you rather I had burdened you with what might have been a piece of paranoid speculation? Perry pulled a face. But it wasn't. We know that now. The duo continued to walk along the pillar-lined walkway. But when I first heard the news of Stengos's death, I couldn't be certain. I'd feel safer if the TARDIS was a lot closer. The Time Lord shook his head. The TARDIS would attract attention. I want to slip in unnoticed. Davros was using his security cameras to listen to the Doctor and Perry talk. Delighted by how compliantly the Time Lord was navigating himself into his imprisonment at TR, Davros started to laugh. First came a guffaw, followed by a big, chesty hoot. In turn, this transmogrified into a manic, almost hysterically crazy roar. In the Chamber of Peace and Harmony, twenty-four funerary attendants were lined up ramrod straight and standing to a stiff attention. They were dressed in full funerary garb of fresh blue tunic and trousers black cotton gloves and matching sash. Using makeup, a widow's peak in traditional necrosian style had also been applied to their foreheads, which merged into a small bonnet-style hat. In front of the line of attendants and looking smugger than usual stood Mr. Jobel. Now this is a big day for tranquil repose, he said sharply, looking up and down the line, and I don't want anything to go wrong. To allow the gathering to fully absorb what he had just said, Jobel allowed his words to hang pretentiously in the air. The key word is respect, he continued. 
To you, the President's principal wife is simply a stiff. But to him, she is a loved one who is about to pass into the posture for perpetual instatement. In other words, she's about to enter the portals of paradise. Moved by his own statement, he wiped a tear from his eye. Now, although the President has yet to arrive, the utmost decorum and good taste will be shown from this moment. Black cotton gloves will be worn at all times, and there will be no drinking, swearing or smoking of herbal mixture in the presence of the deceased. Jobel's eagle eye fell on a male attendant who was scratching the tip of his nose. Are you picking your proboscis? he shouted. The attendant vehemently shook his head. I should hope not. Remember, all necessary conversations will be conducted in a whisper. Anyone who breaks these rules, inadvertently or deliberately, between now and the President's departure, will find themselves scrubbing out the preparation rooms with a toothbrush. Understood? The attendants gave the slightest of nods as Jobel waved a dismissive hand. In her office, Kara and Vogel were fussing over a black box, sporting a display of different coloured switches. Beautiful, said Kara. Incredibly compact, purred Vogel. Exquisite workmanship. Our engineers do such wonderful work, madam. Mesmerised, Bostock and Orsini watched Kara and Vogel as they tried to out-compliment each other. They're like a double act, said Bostock. Orsini stepped forward. What does this device do? he inquired. It's a one-way transmitter, said Kara proudly. Bit big, said Bostock, closely examining it. It has a necessary built-in booster. Kara had started to re-examine the box. Davros's laboratories are buried deep in the catacombs. Like the Spielsnape, leered Vogel. He hides his head under a rock and pretends that nothing can see him. Bostock still wasn't certain they were being told the entire truth. Will the box help us find Davros? Or do you want a running commentary on what we're doing? Even with Davros dead, said Kara, he is not without followers. And like the disciples of any fanatic, they won't give up without a struggle. Last, things were becoming clearer to Bostock. As you can see, said Kara, holding up the device, there is a series of buttons. I will give you a simple sequence that will activate the transmitter. This you must do as soon as you enter Davros's laboratory. The moment you strike that final button, a pre-recorded signal will be transmitted, she said as her face became more animated. I will then mobilize my forces to eliminate Davros's agents here and to take over his entire base. No message, no rebellion, and Madame is safe. What if the box is captured? interrupted Bostock. Vogel gave an oddly high-pitched laugh. If the transmitter is tampered with, the message contained in the circuits will simply melt away. Our engineers have thought of everything, said Kara. But Bostock was beginning to waver again. I don't like it, he said. Too many safeguards. It's as though we're expected to be caught. Simultaneously, Kara and Vogel let out a cry of incredulity. Bostock is a born pessimist, said Orsini. 
and a doubter of other people's motives. As a rule, his instincts are infallible. The only time I didn't listen to him, I received this. Orsini struck his prosthetic left leg with his walking stick, and a dull, metallic noise echoed around the room. My dear Orsini, said Cara, slipping into her best fawning mode, if we had any doubts concerning your skill, do you really think we would be having this conversation? Your reputation is legend. It is said you only have to breathe on a victim and he's dead. Orsini smiled. Oh, I never listen to the foolish things people say about me. I'm too aware of my own mortality. And added with a hint of menace, as you should be of yours. Of course, said Kara. But you must appreciate that the safety features of this box are a mere precaution. No one expects you to fail. I should have too much to lose if you did. Bostock nodded. That makes sense. However, Orsini wasn't entirely satisfied. You must understand that if at any time I smell treachery, the skill I use against Davros will be turned against you. A flick knife suddenly appeared in Orsini's hand, and its blade snapped open with a terrible swishing sound. Understanding, Kara nodded. I am not interested in your political ambitions, said Orsini nobly. I undertake this mission for one reason only, the honour of killing Davros, and the truth it might bring me. Bostock was suddenly becoming practical. We shall need maps showing his precise location. They are prepared, said Vogel. And transport. Vogel was ahead of them, already arranged, but for obvious reasons it can only take you to the edge of Davros's radar. Orsini smiled. The walk will do us good. You will not hear from us again, except as a signal from that. He pointed his flick knife at Kara's black box which we shall await in eager anticipation, said Kara, handing the box to Bostock. Without a word, Orsini swept from the room with all the graces hydraulic limb allowed him, Bostock at his back as ever. The doors had barely slid closed before Kara and Vogel decided it was time to celebrate. Pouring two large tumblers of pink voxnik, they seated themselves on a delicate Art Deco-style sofa. I'm surprised you omitted to tell Orsini that his mission would also result in the death of President Vargos, said Vogel with a massive sense of irony. Being such a great man of honour, he would never have accepted. The problem with honest men is that you have to tell so many lies to motivate them. She took an ungainly slurp of Voxnik. It was fortuitous that the President's principal wife had the good taste to die when she did, thus allowing us the opportunity to dispatch her husband at the same time. Exquisite taste, Vogel agreed. Your health, madam. And yours too, Vogel. There was a clink of glasses. At last we shall be able to make real wealth. It seemed that cupidity was alive and well, and on Necros... Chapter 4 Tazambika entered the great healer's laboratory. 
This could be the occasion, she thought, when she would receive the promotion she so desired. As she crossed the room, a new gold sphere Dalek cruised to a halt in front of her. This is a forbidden area, it said aggressively. After all her time at Tranquil Repose, Tazambika still felt unnerved when challenged by a Dalek. The great healer sent for me, she said nervously. She had no sooner spoken than the great healer, mounted in his life support system, spun his head round with a great swoosh to face her. Yes, child, he said, in a surprisingly friendly voice. I have been watching your progress this last few months, and I am very pleased with what I see. Thank you, great healer, she said anxiously. You have a good attitude to your work and a pleasing personality. Who is your head of department? Mr. Jobel, she said. I shall speak to him. Tell him, if you're agreeable, of course, that I should like you transferred to my personal staff. Tassambika couldn't believe the friendly reception she was receiving from the great healer. I should be delighted and honoured, she said. Good, he continued. You will find the work very different from what you are currently doing, but I'm sure you will find it immensely rewarding. With a silly grin on her face, Tassambika nodded her thanks. Please me, and I can offer you the universe. Tassambika found it difficult to accept what was being said. As she turned to leave the room, Davros spoke again. Stay with me, he purred. See what goes on here. I will tell Jobel where you are. Rooted to the spot, all she could do was stand in silence her face covered with a silly smirk. The wind was gusting again, and once more the Doctor and Perry were beginning to suffer the penetrating cold. Is that also tranquil repose? said Perry, pointing at two enormous pyramids. The Doctor nodded. Yes, some of it. So what's with the polyhedrons? The Doctor smiled. That's part of Tiar's mystery. The pyramids are hollow, and some people say go down anything up to 50 metres below ground. Beyond a system called hydrostabilization, which keeps them standing, not much is known as to how they were constructed or why. For some reason, a chamber of restfulness was built at its base. That's what makes this place like no other funeral parlour in the universe. This is great, said Perry. But I thought you were going to show me the Garden of Fond Memories. Absolutely. As a student of botany, I'm sure you'll love it. This way. Meanwhile, in the old catacombs in tranquil repose, there was a room that functioned as an occasional cell. This was to be found on level 16, not far from where Lord Plunkett, T.R.'s infamous and famous cat, occasionally slept, played, and slept again. Inside, Natasha and Grigory had been chained to the wall. With their tunics torn and faces bruised, they looked a sad and sorry sight. While Tarkis walked up and down nervously, Lilt continued to do unpleasant things to Grigory. Tarkis wasn't keen on violence, 
and took little pleasure in its administration. As Lilt tired of thumping Grigory and turned on Natasha, Taki spoke up. Steady, Lilt, I want them alive. Checking to see if the young woman was conscious, Tarkis noticed, peeping from a tear in her sleeve, the image of a small rose on her arm. The sight caused Tarkis to recollect when, in a moment of folly, he and his wife each had a matching rose tattooed on their arms as a gesture of love and affection. Happy memories of his dear wife, young child, and their life together flooded back into his mind. They had been together only three years when, tragically, this idyll ended abruptly. The shuttle carrying his family to see relatives had collided with an intergalactic freighter and everyone on board was killed. Tarkis's life instantly fell apart. Unable to manage his grief, he joined the army and went to fight in the Peninsular Wars. He wanted to lose himself in the oblivion of armed conflict. What eventually saved him from despair was an unexpected interest in horticulture and the very special skill of floral decoration. A scream from Natasha broke this reverie and brought him crashing back to the reality of the cell and Lilt's unpleasant craft. Why do you keep on and on about body snatching? Natasha shrieked. He was my father and he was alive when he came here. You should have legally applied for the body. Lilt spluttered the words into her ear. We can't let anyone wander about nicking the dead. You think I didn't try to get permission? Natasha fought back the tears. The law works against you. It's impossible to get anyone out of here. Spitting blood, Grigory lifted his battered head. It's suddenly clear. You can't get a body back from here because those who make the law don't want it to happen. He's right, said Lilt, sounding more surprised than he intended. For a drunk, he's not so stupid. Natasha glared at Grigory. What are you saying? There isn't room, Grigory continued. The idea of tranquil repose doesn't work. I mean, the galaxy can barely support those alive now. He's right, uttered Tarkis. There are a lot of important people here. Imagine what would happen if they returned home. They'd be in direct competition with those now in power. Those who presently make the law, added Grigory. Natasha exploded. That's unfair! So is the fact that you'll be hanged. Lilt enjoyed saying the word hanged. On Necros, body snatching is a capital offence. Not when there isn't a body. Attempting to steal a mannequin can hardly carry a death penalty, argued Grigory. Lilt turned to Tarkis. This one has suddenly woken up. There'll be a body, said Tarkis casually. Don't you worry. The great healer will see to that. Grigory wasn't so certain. Yeah, but in how many pieces? You know as well as I do, all that remains of Stengos is his exploded head. The other parts you produce in court will have to be manufactured. Takis scowled and sucked on his teeth. That will be difficult to prove. I am, of course, assuming there will be a trial, smirked Grigory, now becoming a little overconfident. The due process of law will be seen to be done. Lilt picked up Grigory's flask, opened it and sniffed the contents. Grigory scoffed. 
I'm delighted, if somewhat amazed, to hear it. Lilt moved closer to Tarkis. We must maintain our credibility, he whispered. Enough, bellowed Tarkis, sounding authoritative. What we need are the names of your accomplices. Oh, really, said Grigory. Lilt grabbed him by the throat as Tarkis crossed to the door. Use the booze, said Tarkis. Loosen his tongue that way. I'm going for a walk. Let me know when he decides to talk. As Tarkis left, Lilt pulled back Grigory's head and emptied the contents of the flask down his throat. Grigory began to choke and heave. Stop! screamed Natasha. You'll kill him! It was standard practice in tranquil repose for someone to be eavesdropping on someone else. In some parts of the galaxy, this would be called voyeurism. In TR, it was simply a necessary part of surviving. Creepy. This time it was the DJ looking at one of his screens as the Doctor and Perry entered Tranquil Repose's Garden of Fond Memories. As though to celebrate the fact, he was wearing a well-tailored beige zoot suit and matching fedora. He looked stunning, but more importantly, he looked really, really cool. He also sounded the part, or thought he did, with his rendition of a Southern Californian accent, with just a hint of Alaskan. It was an amazing combination. Hey, guys, what's happening here? said the DJ, plonking himself down in his studio chair. He looked at a screen and saw the Time Lord and Perry striding along the concourse. I say, hey, you guys. I say, hey, the damsel is less in distress, but the guy with the tie looks like the walking dead. Hey, now, own up. Which one of you is out of his casket? He gave one of his loud chortles, overbalanced, and fell off his chair. In the Garden of Fond Memories, Perry and the Doctor strolled along the central marble avenue. It was very similar to the one the Time Lord had meandered along in the Roman town of Ephesus some two thousand years ago, but that was another adventure in another time. Perry looked at the smooth lines of the surrounding buildings. Their design seemed to bestow a calming effect with their quiet contemplative style. It was as if whoever commissioned the garden had wanted to generate a sense of utter peace with the confluent use of its various architectural features and setting. It would be great to know how they built hollow pyramids, Perry reflected. I would think with great difficulty, muttered the doctor. With the oldest joke in the world out of the way, the duo continued along the marble avenue, passing some of the most beautiful statuary they had ever seen. The view was augmented by mausoleums aesthetically vying for attention with each other. At the heart of the garden was a glistening lake sourced by many tributaries and said to be bottomless. This, of course, was untrue, but the mood of the garden made you believe that such a thing might just be possible. I really love it here, said Perry. I feel wonderful. Why is the garden having this effect? Well, there's the design factor working its magic, and, of course, there are the negative ions. Yes, but why are they only working in this particular part of the garden? Probably a concentrated effect being refocused by satellite, Perry thought for a moment. So, all that I'm feeling is just science, she said sounding disappointed. 
The Time Lord smiled. Nothing is ever just science, Perry. It's a combination of all sorts of things, including the arts, engineering, architecture, and, of course, nature herself. As Perry cogitated on what the doctor had said, her thoughts were interrupted by a clanking sound. Turning, she saw the tail end of what was a gold sphere Dalek as it glided behind one of the statues. Hey, doctor, she called. The Time Lord stopped. What is it? I, I don't know. It, it looked like some sort of white machine with gold blobs. She started to run back to look for it. It was really cute. Cute, thought the doctor, moving to join her. He couldn't think of any machines on Necros that could possibly be classified as cute. So where is this machine? he said, reaching her. Perry looked around. It seems to have disappeared. There was a look of disappointment on her face. Never mind, he said. At least you've enjoyed the garden of fond memories. Taking one last glance, Perry's eyes settled on a nearby statue. Yeah, I did enjoy it. But you won't believe what I'm seeing now. The doctor was puzzled. What do you mean? Look behind you, doctor. Does it look familiar? The Time Lord turned, and his face collapsed into a look of utter discombobulation. I don't believe it, he muttered. It can't be possible. In front of him was a brilliantly carved, three-metre-tall statue. It looked remarkably like the Doctor. This is awful, he said, walking towards it in a distressed state. Don't you like it? A confused Perry examined the sculpture. It's not a bad likeness. Perry was right. Despite the statue being brilliant white, it was still possible to see the fine detailing of the face, his patchwork coat, and the polka dots on his cravat. So realistic were the curls of his hair, they appeared to be blowing in the cold wind. This is dreadful, the Time Lord muttered. Perry was still perplexed. Is it? We are in the Garden of Fond Memories, remember? I've somehow managed to arrive after my own death. She shook her head. That's not possible. This statue here is of me as I am now, he said sadly. I shall never again regenerate. Oh, come on, Doctor, the statue's a joke, she said, trying to reassure him. Someone's having you on. I don't think so. I've arrived in my own future, and I'm dead. You can't be. You're standing in front of me and very much alive. Look at it this way. If I were to take you back to Earth in the TARDIS on a date after you had died, it would be possible for you to see your own gravestone. Perry shivered at the thought. Come on, it's got to be a gag. A gag? A gag? Do you realise how much a statue like that costs? It's far too expensive for someone to play a silly game. The Time Lord looked around sadly. And I hoped I was good for a few more regenerations. Perry didn't like what she was hearing. Hey, if you die here, what, what's going to happen to me? I... I can't fly the TARDIS. I'll be stuck here, she hesitated. Unless there's also a statue of me somewhere. 
She wandered off, now engrossed in her own existential dilemma, leaving the doctor to consider his own future, or lack of it. As he turned his back on the statue, something totally unexpected happened. It began to move. I never thought precognizance of my own death would be so disturbing, he muttered. Perry continued to search, but was unable to find her own tombstone. So she looked again, and again. I can't find it anywhere, she called to the doctor. Absorbed by the thought of his own predicament, he wasn't properly listening. It was then Perry saw the statue of the doctor starting to oscillate. At first she thought it was a hallucination, but on closer examination she saw it was definitely sliding, swinging, swaying. Doctor! she called desperately, but again he didn't hear her. The sculpture was now on the verge of toppling. Doctor! Look at the statue! It's moving! Still the unhearing Time Lord remained transfixed. The statue was now leaning, tilting further forward. Doctor! The massive stone rolled forward, and under the effects of gravity collapsed onto the Time Lord. It was sad that such a beautifully carved piece of stone had been turned into a weapon of death. Reaching the doctor, Perry grabbed his still visible leg and tugged. Help! Please help me! She yelled, looking around desperately. Someone's been hurt! Help me! At once, like a comedy character in a bad movie, Mr. Jobel appeared from behind an obelisk. I need your help! Perry implored. Be calm, pretty thing, said Jobel, sashaying over to her. Someone as pretty as you shouldn't be all of a flutter. Please, my friends had a terrible accident. Oh, that's obvious, he said, poking at the statue with his foot. We have to get the doctor out. I'd destroy my back lifting that thing. Besides, you wouldn't want to see the mess under there. Jobel took out a small mirror, peered into it and started to gently adjust his oh-so-obvious hairpiece. Perry was incredulous. Can't you do that later? My friend might still be alive. No, he's had it. Jobel returned the mirror to his pocket. Whereas you, my pretty, are very much with us, he leered. I like pretty things, and you are very pretty, aren't you? Get away, you creep. Oh, it's plain to see you're upset. Was he a close friend? Does that really matter? Perry almost choked on her words. Life's strange, isn't it? You lose one friend, he said, pointing at the doctor's leg, protruding from under the statue, only to find another. So saying, he offered his outstretched hands. Perry couldn't believe what she was hearing. Are you some kind of weirdo? Weirdo? No, he laughed. I'm Jobel. I'm very important here. I'm the chief embalmer. Suddenly a familiar voice was heard from under the statue. Chief Embalmer? I'm not dead yet. D doctor, Perry stammered. The doctor effortlessly pushed away the toppled sculpture and climbed to his feet. Is this one touting for business? Me? Tout? I'll have you know people come from all over the galaxy for my services. Jobel looked the Time Lord up and down. Mind you, you're the first living client I wouldn't mind tackling. He does go on, 
mumbled the doctor. He turned to Jobel. Do you know who organised this statue? Jobel looked offended. I'm the chief embalmer. I carve people, not stone, or in your case, pieces of cheap plastic. Perry found her voice as she pointed to the Time Lord's cloak. You're covered in blood! The doctor examined his cloak. No, it's synthetic, like the statue and this grotesque here. It's all part of an elaborate theatrical effect. Jobel panted and ranted at the notion of being considered theatrical. I am Jobel, he said. I conceive and create the finest posture for perpetual instatement anywhere in the galaxy. The Time Lord nodded. Then you must be enormously busy. In fact, I am, Mr. J said with immense smugness, with President Vargas's principal wife. The doctor looked sad. Poor old Sonny's passed on, has she? Pity. I knew her long before she met the President. I might pop in later to say goodbye. Jobel held up a hand metaphorically barring the Time Lord's way. I wouldn't if I were you. The President is about to arrive for her perpetual instatement. I don't think he'll want riffraff like you plodding about. You could be right, said the Doctor matter-of-factly. Come on, Perry, we've got work to do. Where are we going? For starters, to find who is responsible for the statue. He turned to Jobel. Sorry I can't say it's been a pleasure meeting you. Jobel shrugged. You know, he said, if that statue had actually been made of stone, I doubt if it would have killed you. The Time Lord looked bemused. Really? No, it would take a mountain to crush an ego such as yours. He turned to Perry and blew a kiss. Goodbye, my pretty. I know we'll meet again, and very soon. On a security screen in his laboratory, Davros and Tassambika watched the Doctor and Perry exit the Garden of Fond Memories, cross a footbridge, and then make their way towards the reception area of Tranquil Repose. All goes as planned. Davros beamed most wickedly. Soon the Doctor will be my special guest. Therefore you must attend to him as most honoured. Be gracious. Show the Doctor the treasures Tranquil Repose can offer. Of course, great healer, said Tassambika enthusiastically. Entertain him until I am able to organise his accommodation, Davros crowed. Then deliver him to my Daleks in Sector 3. They will know what to do. As you command, great healer. Davros's face crinkled into what passed for a smile. Now go, he ordered. Confused, bewildered, and not knowing what to expect, Tazambika gave a small bow, left the laboratory, and quickly made her way to reception. In the cell, Grigory was tunelessly humming. This was causing Lilt to suffer enormous frustration. He wasn't used to his interrogation techniques failing. In desperation, he turned to Natasha and demanded she made Grigory talk. I didn't make him drunk, she said. Not really knowing what to do next, Lilt decided to withdraw from the scene. With the door slammed and bolted, Natasha whispered, Are you really as inebriated as you seem? 
Grigory smiled and let out a loud theatrical hiccup. What do you think? Tranquil Repose's reception was too uncomfortable, its furniture too shabby, and the lighting level too low. It seemed a strange form of presentation for a successful funerary company to adopt. These were the thoughts the doctor had as he twirled into the area, unfurled the cloak from his shoulders, and swirled it into a neatly folded parcel. As he dropped it onto one of the sofas, he noticed a security camera mounted high above his head. He stared deeply into its lens and tried to sense the presence of the person watching at the other end. This place is creepy, said Perry. And it'll get a good deal creepier when I find out who erected that statue. Perry removed her outdoor coat. They may not tell you. The doctor started to look around the reception area. They will, he said. I shall be subtle. To use your parlance, play it loose. As they were about to enter the Chamber of Peace and Harmony, Tassambika half stumbled, half tripped into the room. May I help you? She bellowed far louder than was necessary. Like her uniform, her formal manner was equally as starched. My name is Tazabika. Welcome to Tranquil Repose. Uh, hi there, said an embarrassed Perry. I think we're just fine. You know, only looking. The doctor cleared his throat. Actually, we've come about a funeral. Tazambika was phased. I beg your pardon? A burial. Noting her lack of understanding, the Time Lord tried again. What about an internment? It still didn't register. An inhumation? Nothing. A sepulchre? Still blankness. An obsequy? Suddenly there was a roar of recognition. Ah! Tazambika bellowed. What you mean is the posture for perpetual instatement. Why didn't you say? She said with a big smile. And for whom do you wish this service? The Time Lord looked up at the security camera above his head and gave it a long, slow wink. Me. Tarkis stood in front of the only computer in tranquil repose that couldn't be accessed by the great healer, or at least that's what he hoped. Quickly he tapped his security number on the keyboard and the wall screen crackled into life. How do you do, Mr. Takis? What is your pleasure? Takis smiled. He loved the foppish computer voice a truculent engineer had installed in a moment of mischief. I want the ETA of President Vargos's ship, he said. A transponder number flashed up on the screen. Estimated time of arrival, approximately 57 minutes. The answer was as Tarkis expected. Any other incoming traffic? A second number flickered on the screen. There is an unscheduled freighter, the computer voice said. Direction? Planet Necros. Tarkis grinned. That was also what he wanted to hear. Thank you, computer. You're welcome. Mr. Tarkis. Chapter 
Chapter 5 In reception, Tassenbeeker had the Doctor and Perry trapped on a lumpy sofa. She was showing herself to be an indomitable salesperson in the hope that the great healer would be proud of her patter. Of course we offer an excellent range of services, she continued, and our Mr. Jobel, being the finest embalmer in the galaxy, would conceive, create and supervise every detail. The doctor yawned discreetly. There was no stopping her enthusiasm. If you choose the posture for perpetual instatement, she persisted, you will pass over in a ceremony of outstanding and unrivalled inspiration. It would be as if paradise awaits you. Alternatively, you might simply consider becoming a resting one. Perry rolled her eyes. Tazambika had begun to sound like the content of a badly written sales brochure. Now, if you should decide to accept our unique service, she carried on, your body would be cryogenically stabilised. Needless to say, your resting consciousness will be constantly updated concerning social, cultural and technological developments of your choice. We wouldn't want you to wake up feeling the universe had left you behind. Perry wasn't impressed. It all sounds so sterile. Of course, that too has been considered. For a small extra fee, you may purchase our personalised communication service. Tazambika operated a screen close to her, and a tinny fanfare sounded. Di-da-da, di-da-da, di-da-da. On the screen appeared the DJ, dressed in a blue, tranquil repose uniform. Hi there, this is the DJ. His voice was again Americanized, and he spoke with great enthusiasm. Now, if you're missing your resting one, and want to tell them just how much, then I'm the guy to do it. If you want to remind them of any special event that is personal to you both, call me. I am the messenger who connects your heart with their heart. The expression on his face softened, and his tone became professionally sincere. Remember, nothing is too intimate to be relayed. All your messages are treated in the strictest confidence. You have the sincerest promise of the DJ. He then added enthusiastically, So, hey there, if you have a message from your heart to their heart, I'm your guy. Hey, I'll be hearing from you, okay? Di-da-da, di-da-da, di-da-da. Perry laughed. Oh, that's great. He hardly took a breath. He's a little like the DJs on Earth. The doctor nodded, irritated. Precisely. The terrain was bleak. Concerned they were a little off course, Bostock checked his electronic map. Two more clicks, he said to Orsini. Course correction, point zero three five seven of a teraleptil degree. Orsini, who had been in meditation for the last hour, suddenly regained full consciousness. Bostock, who had never mastered the combined skill of walking and meditating at the same time, found this behaviour disturbing. The idea of coming under attack when the senior member of the duo was mentally elsewhere concerned him. Enormously. Two more clicks, acknowledged Orsini. We'll take a short break now and prepare ourselves. As usual, Bostock was loaded with all the kit. All Orsini ever carried was a walking stick, 
a huge burden of pride and a massive chunk of dignity. Bostock didn't mind his master bearing the nobility, but wished he also gave a hand with the more mundane stuff. They could have brought us closer, master, said Bostock, dumping the bags on the frozen ground. The walk will clear our minds, make us alert, focused. Bostock took out a water bottle and handed it to Orsini. Something's wrong, master, he said, suddenly sniffing the air. I smell death. Orsini took a swig from the bottle. When is it you don't sense danger, Bostock? he said, placing the bottle on the ground. The squire would not be deflected. Wait, master, he whispered. There's something nearby. He pulled out a blaster and hastily set it to kill. Over there, Bostock said, pointing. The grandmaster quickly raised his walking stick into a parrying position, pressed a hidden button and a razor-sharp metal spike clicked into place at its tip. He was poised, wired, ready for action. Bostock smelt the air again. The danger has passed, master. Whatever it was, it's dead. Switching off his weapon, he returned it to its place of concealment. There's no organ decay, so it must have died recently. With all the dignity of a gentle country parson, Orsini, followed by Bostock, strolled over to the dead body. It was the mutilated man the doctor and Perry had encountered earlier. Bostock's eyes brightened. Can I take a trophy, master? Just an ear? There is no honour in that, Bostock. You didn't kill him. That doesn't matter. Go on, master, just a small token. Orsini pointed at the heavy scarring on his face. Hasn't the creature suffered enough in life? Surely you can spare him further mutilation in death. Bostock looked ashamed. Sorry, master, you're perfectly right. You so easily forget that I am a knight of the Grand Order of Oberon. Whereas I may be temporarily excommunicated, I do still try to live by the Order's rules. Bostock gave a small bow in supplication. Forgive me, master, but you never did tell me the reason for your excommunication. And never will I, as the Order forbids disclosure of alleged misdemeanours as perpetrated by their knights. I'm afraid, my dear Bostock, you'll have to wait until fifty years after my death to learn the truth. But be assured, the jewel was an honourable one, and the lady's virtue was preserved. As is always the case with you, master. The thing you must understand, continued Orsini, is that nothing must taint or spoil the Davros mission. I do understand, master. I sometimes wonder if you see me as an anachronism, for that's what I feel I have become. No, master, you are the finest soldier I have ever had the honour to serve. I am no longer a real warrior. Nowadays soldiers are technicians. They hide underground from where they operate their machines of destruction. Only fools would take the risks we do. You're a grand master, a man of complete honour, who does what he thinks is right. Whatever, right or wrong, this must be my last mission. You do understand, Bostock? Yes, master. Only too well. Bostock was concerned. 
The Grand Master had never talked of a final mission before. He knew Orsini's prosthetic leg was causing him pain, but until that moment he was unaware of the change in his frame of mind. Bostock's life since a very young man had been based solely around the activities of Grand Master Orsini. Having seen Bostock's bravery at the Battle of Vavatron, the knight had invited him to join the order where he had distinguished himself in squire training. They had been together ever since. As Bostock returned the water bottle to one of the bags, Orsini held his walking stick against his side as if it were a sheathed sword. While in deep preoccupation earlier, I had a thought, Bostock. Oh dear, thought the squire, that never boded well. Have you ever used a sword? Not recently, master. Not unlike a large knife, it was used on many planets for thousands of years. Even when it was superseded, the sword was still carried ceremonially. Symbol of honour. Something almost spiritual. As he spoke, he made a mock lunge with a walking stick towards Bostock, who instinctively parried it. Those were the days, eh, master? Orsini placed the walking stick on the ground and bent down to one of the shoulder bags. He opened it and took out a 1980s earth machine pistol. This is my new symbolic sword, Bostock. The squire was horrified. You're not using that, he insisted. It jammed last time. The thing's obsolete. Orsini removed a loaded magazine from the bag and inserted it into the weapon. I am an expert in this type of gun, he said. I know, master, but that thing's useless. You may think that my judgment is clouded by thoughts of honour, but my experience as a soldier has not deserted me. Bostock took out a blaster and handed it to Orsini. Take this, master, just in case your machine pistol jams. As the Grand Master accepted the weapon, Bostock reacted to a distant sound. There's something else out there, master, he said, taking out another weapon. What is it? Something hostile. His voice was now tense. Orsini silently eased off the safety catch on his machine pistol. It's behind us, master, Bostock said, taking aim. Intuitively, the two men were now working in concert. Orsini gave a signal and they swung round silently together and both opened fire at an approaching gold sphere Dalek. The machine pistol's projectiles ripped into the casing and the patrolling Dalek exploded. So much for Davros's new breed of Dalek. Amazing, said Bostock. I've never seen lead bullets penetrate a Dalek so easily. They're fitted with bastic heads, explained Orsini. As you should know, Bostock, I take few risks. In her office, Kara and Vogel were crowded around a screen, watching a transponder code move imperceptibly across the monitor. The President's ship, madam, confirmed Vogel, pointing fussily at the transponder number. Kara's lips erupted into an expansive smile. What a delicious sight! Almost sweet enough to eat. I suggest it would be safer if we shot it down, madam. Kara shook her head. That would be like an advertisement. No. Orsini will do his work, 
and we shall remain anonymous. A cacophony of sirens sounded in Davros's laboratory. Alert! Alert! Dalek on perimeter patrol has been destroyed! Squawked a gold sphere Dalek. It seems my agents were correct, said Davros, uncharacteristically calm given the circumstances. As I guessed, Kara has employed assassins. She has betrayed me. In the same shabby client lounge at Tranquil Repose, on the same lumpy-bumpy couch, the Doctor and Perry were still enthralled to Tazambika. She'd been talking non-stop about the benefits of the posture for perpetual instatement and other funerary services for what seemed like forever. Such was her enthusiasm she endowed them with a number of free gifts, including a metal propelling pencil, emblazoned with the slogan, Tranquil Repose. Rest safely in our hands. Having a fascination with pencils, the doctor slipped it into his pocket. At least he thought I've gained something out of this near-mind-splitting interrogation. Look, I'm finding what you're saying absolutely fascinating, the doctor yawned inside his head. But when I said I was interested in my burial, Perry interrupted, I, I think you mean pasture for perpetual instatement, doctor. Thank you, Perry. Yes, I was in fact referring to something a little more specific. Tazambika leaned closer to the doctor. And what was that? she inquired. In the Garden of Fond Memories, a statue of me has been erected. Now I want to know who did it. Tassambika instantly became Miss Fussy Boots again. It is not possible to disclose such information, she insisted. Have you not heard of data protection? Only with the expressed permission of the great healer can any details be released. The great healer, really, said the doctor. Do you remember the last time we heard that name, Perry? She nodded, recalling the Time Lord's fight and how she, in defending the Doctor, had beaten to death the man with the melted face. I'd hardly forget that, Doctor, she said sadly. I'd like to meet this great healer of yours, the Doctor announced. Of course, Tazambika smiled nervously. That can be arranged. Kara and Vogel were studying production forecasts and other management matters when, without warning, an angry Davros appeared on the holographic screen. Kara, as ever, maintained a smooth composure. It's always an enormous pleasure to speak to you, great healer. In fact, only a minute ago, Vogel was offering thanks to your name for such inspired production estimates. Indeed, echoed Vogel. An inspiration. Your pulchritudinous... There are more important things to consider, Davros flared indignantly. A Dalek patrol has been attacked. Outrageous, exclaimed Vogel. An insult to your very dignity. I believe assassins are attempting to infiltrate my base. It concerns me that those who are trying to kill me might also try the same with you. Kara remained calm. Oh, I have every faith in my guards. A fine body of men, she said blissfully. I personally selected each and every one of them. Davros was unimpressed. 
Experience has taught me humanoid life forms are susceptible to bribery. I would therefore prefer you were protected by those incapable of corruption. Kara continued to hold her nerve. You can only mean Daleks, great healer. I have already dispatched a squad for your protection. You are unbelievably kind, Kara said, going excessively over the top. Thank you for your thought and consideration. The great healer's face vanished from the screen. Kara and Vogel exchanged an awkward glance. I think he guesses, madam, Kara snapped back. He can guess what he wants. He won't live to learn whether he was right. Concerned that Kara was underestimating Davros's aggressive disposition, alarm bells sounded in Vogel's head. I fear, madam, that you may be placing too much trust in Orsini. He will succeed, Kara insisted. And when he does, her tone was becoming more rhetorical, not only will I be rid of that troublesome Davros, but I will control the food supply for the whole galaxy. More floral displays were being carried into the Chamber of Peace and Harmony as Tazambika took the Doctor and Perry to meet the Great Healer. Actually, said Perry, instead of the Great Healer, can I meet the DJ? Tazambika climbed back into her Miss Fussy Boots. I'm sorry, but the DJ is very busy preparing for tonight's broadcast. But Perry was not deterred. I'm really curious, she insisted, to know where he picked up his patter. Tazambika looked very stubborn. I'm afraid I must forbid it. This is not how we do things at Tranquil Repose. Jobel's voice boomed and echoed around the chamber as he sashayed down the pathway of Heaven's Staircase towards the Doctor's group. Arguing again, Tazambika? You're supposed to help clients, not drive them away. I'm sorry, Mr. Jobel, but these are special clients and... The young lady here wants to meet the DJ. Jobel leered at Perry. And so you shall, my pretty thing. Seeing the easy way Jobel flirted in front of her, Tazambika was mortified. Trying to restore a modicum of her dignity, she declared to Jobel that she would be escorting the doctor to meet the great healer. That should be a contest worth missing, said Jobel. Wasting no further time, he took Perry's arm. This way, my pretty. Jobel will look after you. Brushing away his hand, the thought of wandering into the depths of tranquil repose, alone with Mr. Jobel, unnerved Perry. Look, Doctor, she said. I've changed my mind. I prefer to go with you. I'm sure the great healer won't mind. Excuse us for one moment, said the Time Lord. I'd just like a word with my friend. Putting an arm around Perry's shoulder, he gently steered her away. Go with Jobel, he said quietly. I think from what we've learned you'll be much safer with him than you will with the so-called great healer. Couldn't we just go back to the TARDIS now? After what happened in the Garden of Fond Memories, the doctor shook his head. That's why I have to find out more about the great healer. Remember the mutant and what he did to him? He guided her back towards Jobel. Have a nice day. Almost on the verge of salivating, 
Jobal extended his hand to Perry. With me as her escort, he panted, she certainly shall. Kazambika watched as Jobal led Perry away. She felt crushed by his insensitivity. He knew she had feelings for him and yet continued to treat her in such an insouciant and uncaring fashion. He was being a brute. What a nice man, the doctor said to Tazambika. A friend of yours? Tazambika, whose fury was now at boiling point, finally exploded. What's it got to do with you? she roared. Having experienced the full onslaught of her frustration, the Time Lord patted down his hair and straightened his cravat. It seems absolutely nothing at all. I was only showing an interest. Still fuming, Tazambika led the doctor out of the chamber, along a corridor, round a bend and down some steps. Perhaps it was only in his imagination, but it seemed to get colder as they approached Sector 3. Tazambika threw open a set of heavy double doors to reveal two waiting gold sphere Daleks. The doctor was horrified. You will come with us, said the first Dalek. You will obey, said the second. The doctor turned to run, but Lilt was waiting behind and delivered a blow to the Time Lord and he collapsed to the floor. Tarkis then joined the action reluctantly and they both pulled the doctor to his feet. Take him to the cell, ordered the first Dalek. Although winded, the doctor was still able to walk. Goaded by Lilt, the Time Lord was pushed along corridors until they reached the underground cell where Grigory and Natasha were being held. The doctor was shoved inside and his ankles shackled to the floor. At least I'm still alive, he thought. Though looking at his two cellmates manacled to the wall with their badly bruised faces, he wondered for how much longer. Grigory, who was barely conscious, groaned as he gazed around the cell in search of the new arrival. What's happening? The Time Lord, who was in surprisingly high spirits, chirped. How do you do? I'm the Doctor. Doctor? Grigory stared at the irritating man in his multi-patterned, multicoloured coat. You're a Doctor? Am I really that unwell? The journey to the DJ's studio seemed to go on forever. Jobel was taking the long route and, at the same time, practising his full repertoire of excruciating chat-up lines as they went. You do know where we're going, inquired Perry. Of course, pretty thing. Then why is it taking so long? I find your company exciting, pretty one. I could spend all day drinking in your presence. Well, today you'll just have to go thirsty. Now, where is the studio? Disheartened at the rejection, Jobel pointed. Next left, he said. Perry increased her pace and soon arrived at the DJ's studio. Inside, at his transmission deck, sat the man himself. Now dressed in his blue, tranquil repose tunic, the zoot suit jacket casually draped over his shoulders and the fedora on top of his head. Thank you for showing me the way, Mr. Jobel she said, relieved to have arrived safely. You know, said Jobel, those red ruby lips were made for kissing. But not by you, Perry grimaced. 
I love a woman who plays hard to get. Then you'll love me to death. Jobel went all curly at the thought. Can't wait, he said with enormous intensity. Seeing Jobel and Perry outside, the DJ went towards the studio door. I hope the lying in state goes well, said Perry, and thanks for showing me the ultra-long scenic route here. My pleasure, pretty one, he said without appreciating the irony. As Jobel departed, the DJ opened the studio door and Glenn Miller's In the Mood poured into the corridor. Perry smiled nervously. Hi. I hope you don't mind me dropping in. No, it's nice to have visitors, he said nervously, backing away from the door. Hi, I'm Perry Brown. Nice name. Perry's short for Perpogillium, but no one can pronounce that. Here I'm known as the DJ. He was now speaking in his own Liverpool accent. My real name's Derek Johnson. Pleased to meet you, they shook hands. I hope you don't think I'm being rude, but is your American accent real? asked the DJ. Perry looked embarrassed. Well, I hope so. That's amazing, beamed the DJ, overwhelmed by the experience of actually meeting an American, in person, in front of him, and alive. Uh, talking of voices, yours seems to have changed. I, I mean, in the promo, you were a New Yorker. Oh, yeah, well, that's just my other voice, you know. He slipped into a New York accent. Yeah, I use that just for kind of professional duties, you know. He was now moving his body to the rhythm of his own speech and his hands waved in augmented motion. Well, said Perry, I knew it was too good to be true. Stupidly, I thought you'd come from the States. What? The DJ was overwhelmed. The United States of America? On Earth! Well, that's right, said Perry, smiling. That's just amazing! Perry was moved by his enthusiasm. Have you been there? No, it's just that I've heard recordings, you know. My great-granddaddy brought them back from one of his visits. Again, he slid into his New York accent. I really love the sound of those old American DJs, so I kind of decided to kind of base my style of presentation on them, you know? Well, the accent's very good. Thank you, the DJ grinned. Kind of almost makes me feel homesick. Oh, thank you. I'm glad somebody likes it. Doesn't half aggravate the great healer. Tazambika was worried by her involvement in the doctor's capture. The arrest was too violent and certainly illegal. Returning to the great healer's laboratory, she was eager to express her concerns, but instead was overwhelmed by his loquacious welcome. You have pleased me, he said, swiveling around to greet her. You carried out my orders exactly. In fact, I am so satisfied. I have another crucial mission for you, Tazambika. Davros turned to his attendant. Show me Joe Bell, he ordered. Instantly, an image of him appeared on screen. Tazambika stared, still hoping, still in love. I am told you have affection for this man. Oh, I, I did once, she squirmed slightly. He is a difficult man, said Davros quietly. Arrogant, 
Wouldn't you agree? Tazambika nodded, still staring lovingly at Jobel's image on the screen. I once offered him immortality. He turned it down. Dad, he's a fool, she snapped. Answer me truthfully. Do you still have affection for Jobel? No, she blurted. But then after a moment's thought, Yes, I do love him, she said, looking at Jobel's image. Though I don't know why. Embarrassed, she looked down at the floor. He's always humiliating me. So I have observed, said Davros. There was now more steel in his voice. If someone had treated me the way he has you, I think I would have killed them. Tassenbeeker almost laughed at the suggestion. Kill him? Oh no, I couldn't do that. Not Mr. Jobel. No? There was now pure venom in his voice. Watch him. The words were like two spikes being driven into bare flesh. Use the security cameras to observe his activities. Then tell me if your hate does not grow. The cell was a miserable place. It was dark and wet. Neither did being shackled to the floor improve the doctor's perspective of things around him. Searching through his pockets, the Time Lord came across the metal propelling pencil gifted to him by Tazambika. Cautiously, he began to work the implement into his ankle restraints. Much to his surprise, the pencil's point proved to be very strong. For several minutes, the doctor manoeuvred the pencil back and forth, forwards and backwards, attempting to release the lever securing the lock. Not doing very well, are you? said Grigory, still drunk from his earlier encounter with Lilt. Be quiet, said Natasha. He's doing his best. The Time Lord continued to work on the lock and sensed he was close to opening it. What are the Daleks up to? he asked. Body snatching, replied Natasha. They stole my father's body and were turning him into a Dalek. It was horrible. The mental image seemed to sober up Gregory. It was growing just like an embryo. There's only one person who could have achieved this. Davros. He's finally done it, surmised the doctor. Daleks that can reproduce anywhere. It's a tremendous feat of genetic engineering, said Grigory. Pity he didn't put it to a better use. There was a sudden click, and the ankle restraints fell open. Chapter 6 In Kara's office, a computer screen clicked on. Sensors indicate that the President's ship is precisely on schedule, announced Vogel. Splendid! It seems that punctuality is the only thing upon which a politician can be relied. Vogel poured two glasses of purple Voxnik. Madam, he said, as he passed her the drink. Remind me, continued Kara, when I hold supreme power, to always be late. I would hate to be caught in a trap similar to the one I have devised for the President. That would never happen to you, madam. Peering at the screen, Kara noticed another transponder code. What is that ship? 
It's a freighter, madam, that seems to be off course. Oh, dear, said Kara with mock concern. Lost and far from home. How sad. It was then that a portable communicator buzzed. Whereas our mission is very much on course, madam, said Vogel, pointing at the communicator. Orsini has entered the catacombs. Your problems are almost over. Wonderful! Kara couldn't have been happier. It's only a matter of time before he finds Davros's laboratory, taps out his silly code and blows himself, Davros, President Vargos and that disgusting little squire into a thousand tiny, tiny pieces. She then sighed. Poor Orsini. He was such a dedicated man. Kara and Vogel linked arms and toasted each other, delighted at their achievement. As they swallowed one of the finest drinks in the whole of the galaxy, a group of gold sphere Daleks appeared in the doorway. Their presence quite spoilt the moment. You will come with us, demanded the first one. Vogel was outraged. How dare you enter unannounced? You are to be taken to Davros, said the second. You will answer for your crimes. What crimes? protested Vogel. But it was too late. The gun stick on the first Dalek exploded into action, and Vogel was encased in its death beam. For a moment, he exchanged a lover's look with Kara, a lover's look that went unreciprocated, before falling to the floor. Kara bent down next to him. She seemed distressed by his death, but in reality, her reaction was that of pragmatic factory owner. How inconvenient, she said. Do you know how difficult it is to find good secretaries? You will come with us, ordered the second Goldsphere Dalek. And as silently as they had arrived, the Daleks left, with Kara there unwilling prisoner. A concerned Jobel walked hurriedly along the corridor. He had just received some awful news, the sort that was never wanted in an establishment like Tranquil Repose. Turning a corner, he almost collided with Tarkis and Lilt. I've heard a terrible rumour, he whispered. There are snatchers in the complex. Lilt sniggered. All taken care of, Mr. J. I thought I was going to die when I heard. All locked up now, Tarkis said a little too smugly. If anything were to spoil my perpetual instatement, I'd shrivel up in shame, said a melodramatic Jobel. Leaning in towards Jobel, Tarkis said quietly, Don't you find a lot of strange things happening around here nowadays? Oh no, not more bad news. I don't think my nerves could stand it. I was talking generally. In fact, I don't think things have been the same since the great healer took over. Jobel looked around frantically. Guard your tongue! He has eyes and ears everywhere! There was a sudden change of mood. I think it's time we did something about it, said Tuckis. You do? Jobel thought for a moment. Could you? With a little help, added Lilt. You're very naughty men, Jobel said, with a glint in his eye. Are you interested? asked Tarkis. 
Jobel again looked furtively around. Never was very keen on those Dalek things. Always sticking their plungers where they're not wanted. Tarkis looked pleased. Perhaps we could have a further chat in a more secure spot. Jobel nodded in agreement, but was then instantly distracted by a young female attendant as she provocatively edged past the three men. First we need to finish the perpetual instatement. And with the same breath, he then blew the female attendant a kiss and rushed along the corridor after her, shouting, I love you, I love you, you beautiful thing. With frozen faces, Davros and Tazambika stared at the screen on which they had just witnessed an assembly of conspirators. The man you respect now conspires against me. Davros's voice was like a death rattle. His infidelity is bad enough, but his treason is unforgivable. Tazambika, tears pouring down her face, pleaded, Let me speak to him, great healer. He's mistaken. He didn't mean it. It is too late for words. Suddenly, a gold sphere Dalek chipped in. He should be exterminated! Tazampika was beside herself. No! It is time, Tazampika, for you to decide where your loyalties belong, screeched the bellicose Davros. To you, of course, great healer. It is easy to say. But I require a positive commitment as proof. Tazampika was confused. What do you want me to do, great healer? I once offered Joe Bell immortality. He refused. I now make the same offer to you. Serve me with your total being, and I shall allow you to become a Dalek. As a Dalek's gunstick eased perilously close to her face, Tazambika was terrified. That is an offer, she said quietly. I cannot refuse. It is an offer that must be fulfilled through blood, Davros roared. Now show me your total obedience and kill Jobel! In the DJ studio, Perry was watching a bank of monitors. Can you see everywhere in the complex? she asked. Not any longer, replied the DJ. At least not since they tightened security an hour ago. Perry changed channels. I've got news for you, she said. There isn't any security. The doctor and I walked through the front door unopposed. The DJ shook his head. That's because you were allowed to. He switched on a monitor to show the snowy terrain outside. I've been watching you make your way here long before you came over the big wall. If I could see you, so could the great healer's security team. Do you think you could try and locate the doctor? The DJ cut from one monitor to another, showing different parts of the complex, but was unable to find him. Where was he going? To see the great healer. The DJ shook his head. No chance, he said. His area is right off limits. Suddenly Perry wasn't having such a good time. A small monitor mounted on a heavy wooden door glowed in the dim light of the catacomb. Its screen showed the doctor, Grigory and Natasha, locked in the cell beyond. 
The doctor, now free of his chains, was working with the aid of his trusty propelling pencil on releasing Natasha. Grigory looked on anxiously, wishing the Time Lord would work a little faster. Outside the cell, a very bored guard yawned, stretched and then wandered off along the corridor. Suddenly an arm shot from an alcove and the guard fell unconscious to the floor. Silently, Orsini and Bostock left their hiding place, picked up the guard's sidearm and made their way to the cell door. You should have let me kill him, master, whispered the squire. I appreciate your dedication, Bostock, but he's very unimportant. In fact, I would have preferred him conscious. Questions are accumulating to which I would very much like some answers. Like, why weren't we told about that posture for perpetual instatement, said Bostock, pushing the guard's gun into his own belt. Precisely, said Orsini. And the fact that it's for President Vargas's principal wife. He glanced at the monitor in the cell door and the prisoners inside. Why did Kara omit that detail? Bostock shrugged. We can deal with a funeral, master? Orsini shook his head. What does a recently dead wife usually have? he asked. The squire thought for a moment. A grieving family? Orsini nodded his agreement. And when the husband of that family is a president? What usually surrounds them? Bostock didn't have to think about that one. Armed bodyguards. And that makes our life more difficult. Bostock couldn't disagree. Let's get out of here, Master. Re-evaluate the situation. But Orsini had another idea. In there, he said, pointing at the cell door, are three people. If we are to succeed, we must make them into scapegoats. The squire shrugged. How do we do that? Orsini almost grinned. We release them. The doctor had freed Natasha and was now rapidly working on Grigory's shackles. Suddenly there was a sound outside in the corridor. Visitors, the doctor muttered as he crossed to the door. He was barely in place when the door swung open and Orsini entered, followed by Bostock. The Time Lord grabbed Orsini's arm, but the night was incredibly strong and the doctor's grip was instantly broken. Orsini followed the movement through by knocking the Time Lord's legs from under him. This sent the doctor sprawling. Impassively, Orsini gazed down at the prostrate doctor. Release the prisoners, he ordered. A blast from Bostock's gun and Grigory's chains fell apart. Who are you? asked Natasha. The doctor had recovered sufficiently to be able to focus on Orsini's breast insignia. A knight of the Grand Order of Oberon, he said, climbing to his feet. Only I would be stupid enough to attack such a warrior. Be grateful you're still alive, said Bostock. Oh, I am, the doctor said to the squire. He then turned to Orsini. Really, I am. You're free to go, said Orsini. After we leave, count to twenty. If you attempt to follow us, I will kill you. Do you understand? Oh, yes, said Grigory, feeling rather sick. Orsini removed the power pack from the guard's gun and gave it to Natasha. You may need this to aid your escape, he continued. 
handing the doctor the unloaded weapon. "'What is a knight of the Grand Order of Oberon doing in tranquil repose?' inquired the doctor. Orsini studied the doctor for a moment. "'You may ask,' he said. "'But only a fool would expect an answer.' Realising there were risks remaining in the cell too long, Bostock gestured to Orsini they should quickly depart. As they left, the doctor gave Natasha the gun, and she immediately inserted the battery. "'We should go too,' said the Time Lord. "'But where?' inquired Natasha. "'I want you to take me to the room where you found your father.' "'Haven't you forgotten?' interrupted Grigory. "'We're supposed to count up to twenty very slowly, otherwise they'll kill us.' I really think the man meant what he said. Okay, said the doctor, moving to the door. 4.472136 squared, he said very quickly. Is that slow enough? It almost equals 20. Having yet again tweaked the funerary makeup of the president's principal wife, Jobel descended the stairway of the pathway to heaven. Oh, dear me, squirmed Jobel. She's fizzing, and I think we have termites. Tarkis picked up one of the decorative blue flowers. We need some more of these, he suggested. Jobel agreed. And told she liked floral odours. In an ungainly manner, Tassenbeaker started to climb the stairs. Mr. Jobel, she called. We need to have words. Not now, Tassenbeaker. Can't you see I'm busy? Tarkis guessed from Tassenbeaker's tone there was about to be an enormous argument. Silently, he sloped off with Lilt, followed one by one by all the other attendants. This is important, Mr. Jobel. I have a message from the Great Healer. Knowing the Great Healer was likely to be watching, he looked up into a security camera and said coyly, Why didn't you say? Tazambika was highly agitated. You must leave with me, she whispered urgently. Jobel did a double-take of such ferocity, his hairpiece almost skidded off his head. Well, that's the bluntest invitation I've had all week. If you don't, you'll die, she implored. The great healer hates you. Impossible. I'm his most loyal servant, he said again, looking at the camera and smiling grimly. Not when you conspire with Tarkis. Realising his hairpiece needed attention... He descended the pathway to Heaven's stairway and entered his preparation room. Tazambika scampered after him. We weren't conspiring, that was a joke, he laughed, looking in the mirror. A, a bit of fun. Tazambika's distress level was rising. He wants you dead, Mr. Jobel, she screamed. Dead? queried Jobel, pulling his hairpiece back into place. I'm Mr. Jobel. Chief Embalmer, the place wouldn't function without me. He doesn't care about tranquil repose. Tazampika curled up her tongue into a tight ball and spat out the truth. He's already turned this place into a breeding ground for Daleks. Jobel stormed out of his preparation room, followed by a flustered Tazampika. Now I know you're lying. He paused at the bottom of the pathway to Heaven's staircase and again looked up at a security camera. I spoke to him only the other day. He has tremendous plans for this place. There certainly wasn't talk of a Dalek farm. Tears welled in her eyes. He lies as freely as you pick up women. Oh, so that's what this is all about. 
The tears now poured down Casambika's cheeks. Mr. Jobel, I love you. I'm risking my own life talking to you. Jobel was uncertain how to respond. He wasn't used to women declaring their true love for him in a public place. Look, he said, you spent too many hours alone in the preparation room. Someone as impressionable as you should lavish a little more time on the living instead of fantasizing in the company of the dead. Kazambika was now completely distraught. You've got to get away from here. I could help you. But Jobel didn't want to know. Do you honestly think I could be interested in you? I have the pick of the women here. I'd rather run away with my mother than own a fawning little creep like you. Tazambika's sobs were loud and deep. I knew you could be cruel, but even you have excelled yourself. Dashing back to the preparation room, Tazambika snatched up a hypodermic full of green embalming fluid and returned to the pathway to heaven's stairway where Jobel was still standing. To think, screamed Tazambika, I almost threw away everything for a fat, bald egotist like you. He was incredulous. Fat? Me? Fat? My figure is the height of fashion. The great healer has ordered you dead. She held up the hypodermic like a dagger. And to earn his favour, I am to kill you. Without hesitation, she drove the needle downwards into his heart, closed its plunger and injected the deadly formaldehyde. It was done. Now the shouting had stopped, one by one the funerary attendants returned to their instatement duties. Tazambika turned in shock, stumbled away. What has she done? Jobel asked as he slowly sank to his knees. She has killed Jobel. So slight were his movements, it was as though he were dying in slow motion. This is an indignity too far. I am Jobel. She has murdered perfection. He rolled over, still complaining as he slipped into oblivion. As a final indignity, his hairpiece flopped off. So it goes. Jobel would never have his own posture for perpetual instatement. It took 20 minutes before anyone noticed Jobel had died on the pathway to Heaven's Stairway. It took ten more minutes until they located a doctor, but of course by then, it was far too late. Deep in the old catacombs, Tazambika was still running. Why did I do it? She kept wailing. Why did I do it? Without warning, two gold sphere Daleks glided from a side passage ahead of her. You are to be exterminated! The first Dalek rasped. Tazambika skidded to a halt. No! she screamed. Please! The great healer has ordered it, said the second Dalek. You did not show total loyalty! You attempted to warn the creature, Jobel. You must be exterminated! Exterminated! And without further warning, both Dalek gunsticks 
fired their deadly discharge, and Tazambika died as lonely and sadly as she had lived. In the DJ's studio, Perry looked glumly through TR's security screens, while the DJ, dressed in his blue TR uniform, air-drummed to a rock riff. Is this Dr. Felly, your dad? asked the DJ in his best Liverpool accent. Perry shook her head. Uh, he's just someone I travel with. The DJ looked surprised. He seems a bit old for that. Perry smiled. He's a very capable man. Certainly outthinks me most of the time. She cut to another camera, and the doctor could be seen walking with Grigory and Natasha along the gloomiest of corridors. There he is, she said excitedly. The DJ glanced at the screen. That's not good news, he said. The people he's with are the body snatchers. Seems I can't leave him alone for a minute, Perry muttered. Can I speak to him? The DJ twiddled a knob. Hi there, doctor, he said into a microphone. This is the DJ from my heart to your heart. The microphone was now booming and bouncing with feedback. Here's a very special message for you. He indicated the second microphone into which Perry should speak. Can you hear me, doctor? She shouted. I can indeed, responded the Time Lord. I've been worried about you. I'm perfectly fine. Now, listen, Perry, I want you to go back to the TARDIS as quickly as you can. Use the broadband transmitter, radio the President's ship, and say there are Daleks here and that they must not land. What about you? I'll join you at the TARDIS. Now go. There are bound to be others monitoring this. As indeed there were. On separate screens, Davros could see the Doctor, Natasha, and Grigory in the catacomb, and Perry in the DJ's studio. Bring the Doctor's companion to me at once, he said almost lustfully. I obey, said the first Gold Sphere Dalek. As you command, said a second Dalek. Immediately, announced the third. And while there, continued Davros, destroy that prattling DJ. The Gold Sphere class Daleks then urgently departed. Davros smiled to see such enthusiasm. His plans were at last coming together and he was ready to eliminate all obstacles and annoyances. Gathering up her outdoor coat, Perry moved to the studio exit. You mustn't go, said the DJ blocking the door. It's dangerous out there. Perry was disappointed. I don't spoil it, she said. This has been fun. It's been great talking to you. You're not thinking, he insisted. Please let me by. How far do you think you'd get? The DJ was struggling hard to sound reasonable. The doctor was right. Others will have intercepted his message. They'll be here any minute. I must get back to the TARDIS, and I'm not even sure where it's parked. The DJ picked up a tiny transmitter and handed it to Perry. Use that to contact the President's ship, he insisted. And risk your life as well? It doesn't make sense. It's too late for that. They know you've spoken to me. They won't let that go unchecked. Perry's courage began to fail. I can't get you in trouble too. The DJ placed a reassuring arm around her shoulder. Don't worry. 
We'll get out of this somehow. On yet another monitor, Perry saw in the corridor very close to the DJ's studio three of Davros's gold sphere Daleks gliding silently along the floor. Trouble's arrived already, she said, pointing at the screen. The DJ opened a panel near the studio door and removed a rifle-shaped object from the cupboard behind. I've been half expecting something like this, he said, trying to sound brave. Perry looked at the device and was confused. What do you hope to do with that? The DJ smiled. Destroy a few Daleks! Chapter 7 In the incubation room, the red glow of the area generated a sense of eeriness and foreboding. In one corner, the human brains were still bubbling in their life-support tank. Cautiously entering the area, Grigory, Natasha and the Doctor checked for Daleks, but fortunately they found none. They then moved warily into the adjacent workshop. This is where I was forced to shoot Dad, said Natasha, turning away from the Dalek remains on the floor. It's so sad. He was a superfather and one of the greatest agronomists in the galaxy. The phrase, greatest agronomist, clanged inside the doctor's head. Are you Natasha Stengoff? She nodded. Hello, I'm the doctor. They shook hands. Dad talked about you a lot, she said. It's odd we never met, the doctor shrugged. I only ever caught up with your father at agronomists' conventions, and for some reason I was never invited back for tea. Natasha smiled. The Time Lord glanced around the room. Makes me wonder what he was doing in a place like this. Natasha turned her head away so the Time Lord couldn't see she was crying. He was working here, she eventually said, giving lectures on effective high-yield food production. Natasha wiped away the tears on the back of her hand. Dad became ill, or at least that's what they said. Contracted war's disease from a parasite in one of his soil samples. Then we heard he had suddenly died. I tried to get his body back for burial on Earth, but for some reason they wouldn't allow it. She let out a loud sigh. I was informed that under Dad's own instruction... They had put his body into cryogenic suspension at the point of death. There was always a chance that they could resuscitate him in the future. Arthur wouldn't have kept himself alive artificially, reasoned the doctor. He wasn't like that. That's what I told them, but they still wouldn't listen. I tried for over a year to get Dad back, but all I received was continued prevarication. When I attempted to buy a ticket to visit Tranquil Repose, I was told I needed a special visa, as I was now classified as a known troublemaker. The Time Lord smiled. And, like all good troublemakers, you got round the system anyway. As I had no idea what state Dad might be in, I came with a medic, said Natasha, indicating Grigory. Only it turned out Dad wasn't in suspended animation, but being turned into a Dalek... Even with medical training, said Grigory, I found it difficult witnessing the transformation from human to Dalek. The doctor looked sad. I'm sorry about your father, Natasha. His features hardened into a look of resolution. 
It's time the Daleks were dealt with once and for all. Natasha's reaction was immediate. Count me in. How exactly are you going to deal with them? asked a reluctant Grigory. We can begin with those pyramids in the grounds outside. It's the sort of area where a new breed of Dalek could easily be stored, awaiting activation, he said. Did you get a look inside? No, but I can show you a way in. Natasha pulled a plasticized map from her pocket and held it up for the doctor to see. She then traced a finger, showing him a tunnel that led from a nearby corridor to the ground floor level in Pyramid One. Then let's find it, insisted the Time Lord. But what about the brains in the tanks, said Natasha. They could be suffering like Dad. The doctor thought for a moment. As they can no longer exist as humans, I suggest we put them out of their misery. Grigory walked over to the tanks. I'll do it. These manipulate the life support system. He pointed to a panel of switches. Turn them off and they will die painlessly. Without hesitation, he switched off the controls. Seconds later, the tanks ceased to bubble and the brains lay still. From his laboratory, an incandescent Davros continued to observe on screen the activities of the Doctor, Natasha and Grigory. Do they not know the amount of work I have dedicated to identifying the various cerebral sub-functions that will enhance my gold sphere Daleks? In his tank, Davros's head spun its usual unnerving 360 degrees. They must not be allowed to destroy further experimentation. He screeched as he saw the Doctor and his group turn towards Pyramid One. Activate security now! We obey! The Gold Sphere Daleks chorused. Now, leave me, Davros ordered. I have plans to prepare and someone important to meet. The Doctor and company had gained access to Pyramid One via a maintenance panel on the ground floor. Mindful of guards, they walked carefully along a dark, damp service passage. The walls were smooth, shiny, and seemed to be glistening. Running his fingers over the surface of the wall, the Doctor realised he had felt a similar material before. He ran them down again and became aware that he was touching superheat-treated tinclavic. This explained why they could now hear the not unpleasant sound of liquid trickling through pipes. What's with the water? asked Grigory. I think it's to do with hydrostabilization, said the doctor. It's one of the ways an unsupported structure of this type and size can remain standing. Natasha looked puzzled. I don't recollect any lectures on this in my engineering classes. You will, in about ten years' time said the Time Lord. But briefly, water is pumped under pressure between micro-thin sheets of tinclavic which have been superheated. The key is maintaining the water pressure at an exact level. Reduce it and the structure becomes unstable. Natasha looked puzzled. How do you know this? I once read a book. 
Must have been one hell of a read, chortled Grigory. Yes, it was. But it didn't have a very happy ending. I sense what is going on here will prove the same, Natasha added sadly. Then we must work to make sure that doesn't happen to us. The Time Lord set off at speed, with the others following. They made their way further into the pyramid until they reached several vast banks of electrical contact breakers. The doctor quickly examined them. This is a lot of electricity, he said. Could be several thousand amps. I think we may have found our Dalek farm. The news did not please Grigory. How many could that be? In this case, I would think several thousand. Now, let's find where they're hiding. Quickly and quietly, the doctor led the group through a number of tunnels to where a passageway opened onto a massive storage space. Spreading before them was an enormous expanse of Daleks, cocooned in what looked like white cotton wool, waiting to be activated. They were stacked on multiple shelves, like large Russian dolls in a crazy land toy shop, but without the bright colours and sense of fun. I wouldn't like to be here when this lot wake up, said Grigory, gazing at the regiments of Daleks. Let's get out of here, he insisted. No, Natasha snapped. We're here to deal with the Daleks, not run away from them. Their conversation had drifted into a dark, dingy cell not far from where the group was bickering. Help me, said a desperate voice. Please help me. Save me from the Daleks. Uncertain where the voice was coming from, the doctor looked around. Where are you? he shouted. Over here, the man called. They ran to the source of the voice and found, locked in a cell, a prisoner scarred in the same hideous way as the man Perry had regrettably killed earlier in the day. Please get me out of here, the man pleaded. The Time Lord smiled reassuringly. Yes, of course. The doctor examined the hinges of the door, then the jam, finishing up at a heavy-duty lock. Taking out his propelling pencil, he began to poke around inside the mechanism. Much to his surprise, the device quickly gave under his manipulation. Pushing open the door, the man quickly left his cell. In the brighter light, the doctor sadly surveyed the man's horrific injuries. Is the great healer responsible for this? The man nodded, and overcome by the emotion of having just been released, burst into tears. In contrast, in another dark, dismal corridor in TR, Kara was suffering the indignity of being marched to her destination by a particularly pedantic Dalek. This is outrageous. You're treating me like a prisoner. You will proceed in silence, said the gold sphere Dalek. How can I, she bleated. I suggest you try walking in these shoes. Daleks have no need of shoes. No more delays. Daphros awaits. I would have at least expected transport, she insisted. After all, I am a VIP. Term VIP does not compute, said the Dalek. What is VIP? Considering how I'm being treated at the moment, said an aggrieved Kara, let's settle for a very insecure person. 
In Pyramid One, outside the cell, there was a lot of handshaking. Through his tears, Alex Sagovsky, as the man was called, couldn't say thank you enough. They had saved his life and spared him the fate of being turned into a Dalek. Like hundreds of others, Alex, who was a clinical psychiatrist, had been lured to tranquil repose by the great healer. This was always under the plausible guise of developing answers and solutions to some of the galaxy's challenging problems. They were amongst the best minds in their fields and included scientists, engineers, mathematicians, agronomists, and the odd psychiatrist. The great healer harvested all there was to know about the human race and how it functioned. This was being used to develop and improve his new gold sphere Daleks. The only thing counting in the doctor's favour in his ongoing quest to stop the expansion of Daleks was that their reinvention clearly wasn't going as well as Davros would like. In the storage area, there was a sudden loud click-clacking coming from somewhere above. Alex looked up. Sounds like you may get a chance to meet one of the new Daleks. The doctor was confused. Was that noise it arriving? Alex shook his head. It will arrive in about 60 seconds from now. The group looked up and saw a Dalek shedding its cocoon-like white outer covering. Perched like a fledgling about to take its inaugural flight, it wobbled badly on the edge of its high storage shelf. When activated for the first time, said Alex, they can badly malfunction. In this case, the height of its fall will indubitably destroy it. I once pushed one of those out of a first-floor warehouse window on Earth. It went off with a very big bang. This one is about to fall from three times the height. The words were no sooner spoken than the Dalek involuntarily toppled from its shelf, sending it spinning and twirling down onto the hard floor below. On impact, the Dalek imploded causing its organic innards to be squeezed through the open cracks and crevices of its casing. Unfortunately, they don't all fall apart so easily, observed Alex. That's horrible, said Natasha, staring down at the ooze. That was someone's life. Not anymore, said Alex sadly. Whoever it was, they are now free of the great healer, he grimaced and looked around for somewhere to sit. Grigory saw he was in pain and crossed to join him. I think I should have a quick look at you, he said, placing his hand on Alex's arm. Alex gently brushed it away. I have enough medical knowledge to know I am very tired, but otherwise in fair shape considering events. The doctor was concerned. We can get you to a hospital. Alex shook his head. Your time would be best spent destroying the great healer's Daleks. The doctor pointed at the debris of the Dalek on the floor. Though they seem to be doing a perfectly good job all by themselves. Alex reacted as there was a sudden jolt of pain in his back. If you do want to help me, can someone please fetch a chair from the cell? Followed by Grigory, the doctor crossed to the cell and entered. He picked up the chair, then, as he was about to leave, noticed some mathematical symbols scribbled on a wall. Studying them for a moment, he asked Grigory to fetch Alex. 
The doctor continued to examine the characters, which he could now see were random and unconnected. Who wrote this? the Time Lord asked as Alex entered with Natasha. One of the engineers, he replied, sitting on his chair. Sadly, he was killed before he could complete it. So I see, said the doctor thoughtfully. My maths wasn't up to it, but I gather it was something to do with the pyramid's hydro system. The doctor looked at the mathematical symbols for a minute and then began to mutter to himself. Hmm. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. I think I may have a handle on this, said the doctor, taking out his propelling pencil and setting the graphite to scrawl on the cell wall. Here we go. Bunch of algebra here. Slice of the old 3.141 there. Soups on of trigonometry in here. Pinch of statistics over there, plus a double portion of logarithms thrown in for undoubted good measure. And, oh, yes, these little numbers here. Very interesting. Alex watched in amazement. Do you do that for a living? Oh, no, said the doctor. Nothing so sensible. That's what Natasha is studying. How far have you got with it? Natasha asked as she joined the Time Lord at the wall. I know what some of it means. Natasha closely examined the text. What about those little numbers at the end of the row? She said, pointing at the wall. The doctor shook his head. I am still trying to tune into the left hemisphere for access to my higher maths. The doctor wondered and wondered a bit more. And then he had some idea what it might be. This is a very big structure, announced the Time Lord. Does anyone know where the valve room is for the hydro-stabilisation system? Alex shook his head. It has to be somewhere inside the pyramid, added the Doctor. Those little numbers, said Natasha, they look very familiar. The Doctor looked at them again. Does anyone know the square root of 12.976325? Almost instantly, Natasha responded. Uh, yes. 3.60226664754205. Impressive, chipped in Alex. Well, if you can calculate as quickly as that, said the Time Lord, you must be able to work out what those little numbers mean. I think I can now, she said, taking out her plasticized map. How about map references? The doctor looked at the chart. You could be right, especially as I now see the little numbers match the grid references here. That could be the valve room. Oh, that's really neat, said Grigory. Fancy needing a map reference to find your plumbing. Well done, Natasha, said the doctor. If I can get there, a minimal change in water pressure is all we need to create a slight wobble in the pyramid structure. That should send the Daleks toppling off their perches and into oblivion. Alex, who had been listening attentively, got off his chair. I'll come with you. The Time Lord saw the look of determination on his face. Only if you feel fit enough. Alex nodded. The Doctor then turned to Natasha and Grigory. I have an even more important job for you. Grigory looked very uncertain. And what's that, Doctor? 
I want you both to set up a diversion so Alex and I can do our mischief without hindrance. Natasha smiled. That sounds like you want us to create some sort of smoke screen? The doctor nodded. Are you up to it? Natasha beamed. We could set light to the electrical gear we just passed in the passageway. At first concerned by Natasha's enthusiasm to commit arson, the Time Lord nevertheless felt it right to offer encouragement. How do you plan to do it? Alex pointed at a pile of rags on the floor. You can shred my bedding if that would help. But what could you use as an accelerant to get the fire started? Natasha smiled. Grigory can help with that. He has a standby flask of Voxnik hidden in his left boot. Grigory was stunned. That's for medical emergencies, he said resentfully. I would never drink it myself. After all, I am a doctor. The Time Lord rummaged in his coat pocket, produced a box of matches and threw them to Natasha. I picked those up in 19th century London during the Match Girls' strike. They're phosphorus, so use with extreme care. At the top of the stairs inside the Great Healer's laboratory, Orsini and Bostock lurked in the shadows like two errant schoolboys waiting for the right moment. Quickly, Orsini glanced down into the laboratory. He could see a head protruding above a life support system. Our target, he whispered to Bostock. It's Davros. But first we must deal with his attendant. Immediately, Bostock produced a switchblade knife. Orsini ejected the metal spike from the tip of his walking stick, then, holding its spear-like, he hurled the cane into the wooden steps leading down to the laboratory below. What is that object? said a suspicious Davros. His attendant climbed the stairs, retrieved the cane, just as Bostock lunged forward from hiding and drove his knife into the man's side. As the attendant collapsed, Orsini snatched back his walking stick and slid it into his belt. Raising their guns, Orsini and Bostock sprinted down the steps, firing continuously at their target. Davros replied with a barrage of high-voltage electricity fired from a blue globe on his forehead. Lightning skittered and sparked across the laboratory before going harmlessly to Earth. In a pincer movement, Orsini moved around to the left of Davros's life support device and Bostock to the right. That way, they encircled the creator of the Daleks, bringing him under fire from two positions. But this time, the Bastic heads had little effect. Two more bolts of electricity exploded from the glaring blue eye, zigzagging through the air. The two men took separate cover from the onslaught. You are fools! You cannot kill me! The voice rose to a full rant. I am Davros! I am the creator of the Daleks! Both men fired again and again as smoke began to billow around Davros. He turned, swiveled and twisted continuously as the crossfire from Orsini and Bostock began to take effect and the life support system was reduced to little more than a smoking mess. Davros choked and screamed as his head slowly collapsed like a punctured rubber bladder. The smoke had barely started to clear before Bostock had removed 
Kara's black box from his backpack and placed it on a convenient workstation. Wait, said Orsini. I want to get away from here before we send a signal from that box. You've done it, Master. What more is there? You've killed Davros. Orsini wasn't so certain. Has your instinct deserted you, he said. The kill was too easy. As he spoke, a sudden humming sound emanated from high above. They looked up, and to their amazement, they saw Davros descending from the shadows in the ceiling. This was the old Davros, the one with the leather jacket, single arm, and mobile chariot, but now hovering. Of course the kill was too easy, snarled the creator of the Daleks. That life support system was but a simple lure, a focal point for the assassin's bullet. Now, Place your weapons on the floor. Yes, of course, said Orsini, a little too compliantly. Guards! screamed Davros. Where are my guards? A moment later, with a mighty swish, Bostock's knife flew through the air, missing Davros's neck by millimetres. Orsini instantly snatched up his machine pistol and fired several rounds at Davros, but missed. Gold Sphere Daleks then began to pour into the laboratory, ranting and firing their gun sticks as they went. You will be destroyed! bellowed a Dalek at Orsini. You will not resist the will of Davros! screeched another. As they advanced towards Orsini and Bostock, one of the Daleks broke the formation and moved to outflank them. Orsini returned fire and damaged the gun stick of the leading Dalek. At the same time, he signalled Bostock to fire at the main computer control board. The squire destroyed it. What has happened? Where is my visual security system? Screamed Davros. It must be repaired! I am Davros! I must be obeyed! He was beginning to sound more and more like one of his own screaming, deranged Daleks. My gun is damaged! My gun is damaged! Squealed another Dalek, careening from the room. Removing a small blaster from his map pocket, Bostock opened fire, forcing the remaining Daleks to regroup. After a short interval, there was another exchange of gunfire. Such was its ferocity, Orsini and Bostock failed to notice a Dalek about to attack their flank. It fired hitting Orsini's prosthetic leg and blowing it across the room. With a shout, Bostock turned and discharged his blaster, destroying the eye stalk of the offending Dalek. I cannot see! My vision is impaired! I cannot see! Another Dalek started to fire wildly at Orsini. As it did, Bostock hurled himself on top of his master to protect him from further injury. He was no sooner in position than another flanking Dalek scored a direct hit. Bostock screamed and went limp. Slowly, Orsini managed to free himself from beneath Bostock's body and drag himself across the floor towards the workstation where Kara's black box had been left. Davros crossed the room and hovered over Orsini. You are finished, Grand Master. Orsini didn't answer. Instead, he snatched from his sleeve a small laser and pointed it at Davros's head. 
Unfortunately, he was not fast enough. A bolt of electricity zigzagged from Davros's chariot, sending the gun flying from his grasp. You are old, Orsini. Your reflexes have gone, Davros gloated. Do you think you're the first to try and kill me? Orsini slumped to the floor, exhausted. In his studio, against a background of electro-rock, the DJ was assembling his apparatus. Having now erected a tripod, he was in the process of mounting the rifle-shaped object. When fitted, he opened a panel and started to tweak the electronics inside. Working in a surprisingly focused manner, he adjusted the frequency modulator and then plugged it into an electrical supply. It was now ready for use. While this was happening, Perry tried to contact the President's ship, but to no avail. Wait a mo, said the DJ, now all hustle and bustle. He turned on the deep space scanner and waited for the screen to activate. When it did, it displayed only one transponder code. The President's ship, Perry began. They heard all right, said the DJ. It's gone. Feeling quite proud of themselves, the pair didn't see the gold sphere Daleks gliding and sliding along the corridor towards the DJ's studio. This may sound like a dumb question, Perry said, pointing at the tripod. But what does that thing do? That is our defence. That beauty is a highly directional ultrasonic beam of rock and roll. He switched on the device, swivelled it towards the reinforced glass panel in the studio door, and operated the firing mechanism. There was a loud whining sound, and the glass shattered, sending razor-sharp shards flying out into the corridor. By pure coincidence, the Daleks sent to apprehend Perry and kill the DJ arrived at that very moment, with the lead Dalek taking the full blast. My vision is impaired! My vision is impaired! My vision is impaired! It raved and raved and raved until the DJ fired again and the Dalek burst wide open, its inner living tissue splattering against the wall. Full of the moment's energy, the DJ laughed out loud. That's what it does, Perry. It destroys evil. It kills Daleks. Now that is pure rock and roll! On hands and knees, Alex and the Doctor squeezed their way along a wet, narrow tunnel. Are you sure this is the right way? asked Alex eventually. You haven't misread the map by any chance. The Time Lord didn't smile, as he was busy wiping a huge dollop of what he didn't want to know from the front of his coat. You'll be even more disappointed to learn there's another of those heavy-duty doors ahead of us. He stood up, then helped Alex to his feet. This is the fourth one. They can't go on forever. He took out his propelling pencil and set to work on the door's security mechanism. He was getting quite proficient at picking TR locks, so the door was soon open. Here we are, he said, guiding Alex into the valve room. It's an oscillating double-turn epitran, he smiled cockily. Simply put, it's a tap. A faucet, a sort of valve. Only a very complicated one. How do you know that? asked Alex. I once read a book, he replied. The trouble is, I can't recall much of what it said. And this is what we have to operate? asked Alex. Is it as simple as that? 
Given I had to pick four security locks to get this far, I would say there is nothing simple about this valve. The doctor removed his overcoat and threw it over the security camera he had just noticed mounted on a wall. I hate being watched while I work. The Time Lord began to examine the oscillating double-turn Epitran. His smile. Faded. This was not going to be easy. Natasha and Grigory cautiously made their way back along the passage to the recess where the electrical contact breakers were housed. Dumping the bundles of shredded bedding underneath the lower fuse boxes, Natasha urged Grigory to surrender his emergency flask of Voxnik. Reluctantly, he poured it over the scraps of material as Natasha took out the box of phosphorus matches and struck one. It flared and spat for a moment and then went out. She looked in the box and saw there were only five remaining. What a waste of Voxnik, muttered Grigory. If you're so desperate, you can always suck it out of the cloth. Alternatively, Natasha said, striking another match, we can try again. This she did, but this one also went out. Hoping for third time lucky, she struck another, but dampness had done its evil work. Last two, she said. She struck the fourth one, which flared brilliantly. She dropped it quickly onto rags. This time the alcohol in the Voxnik ignited with a loud whoosh. The blaze rapidly grew and soon the lower bank of fuse boxes was engulfed in flames. Natasha, her face lit up by the blaze, chuckled. This could be easier than we thought. Grigory remained unamused. Someone will soon notice the fuses popping. Then we should get ourselves ready to greet them. To make her point, Natasha pulled out her blaster, set it to kill and flicked on the safety catch. Chapter 8 Watched by Orsini, who was now seated on a stool next to Davros's destroyed life support system, Kara entered the laboratory, escorted by a guard. With her hair ruffled, her makeup smeared, and her dress torn, this was not the usually elegant Kara. Neither was her beauty enhanced by the absence of an upper incisor. Obviously, there had been a recent consultation with Lilt. Ah, there you are, Kara, said Davros as he hovered into the area. I have received your very generous present. Slipping out of hover mode, the chariot settled firmly on the floor. You must tell me whether it is a box of delight or a box of hate. Kara feigned a demeanor of calm and innocence. My dear great healer, she began, or may I call you Davros? But the creator of the Daleks wasn't impressed with such simpering. Yours, I believe, he said, thrusting the black box towards her. Kara glanced at the object. What a pretty little thing, she said, all of a flutter. What does it do? You should know, growled Davros. It was brought by your assassins. 
She looked around the laboratory and saw the implacable Orsini staring back at her. How can you say such a thing, great healer? Davros curled his lips into a neat snarl. I have never trusted you, Kara. I am pained by such a remark, she said. I have served you well. You have served only yourself. Orsini fixed Kara with an expression of utter disdain. Tell him the truth, he said firmly. I am an innocent party, she said with even more flutter and whimsy. I refuse to be drawn into your conspiracy. Davros indicated the black box to a nearby guard. Give that to Orsini. Watched by a horrified Kara, the guard obeyed. Is that wise, she asked. By your own statement, he is a murderer, a common assassin. Davros allowed an ugly smile to spread across his face. He is a knight of the Grand Order of Oberon, he said, with almost a hint of respect. There is little that is common about Orsini. Let me enter the opening sequence, offered Orsini as he began to press buttons on the box. No! screamed Kara. Davros nodded for Orsini to proceed. The Grand Master continued to tap in the sequence, voicing the digits as he went. Four, three, three. Kara had begun to perspire, her nerves starting to fade. Seven, four, E. Even Davros was showing signs of nerves. N, A, J. And then Kara snapped. Stop! Oh, all right, it's a bomb. It's a bomb! A great big bomb! Thank you, Kara, said Davros calmly. Kara lashed out at Orsini. You fool! You imbecile! I thought you were a man of honour. Now we're both going to die. But you before me. From his sleeve, Orsini drew a long, thin blade and drove it up under Kara's breastbone. Kara gasped, took a few staggering steps and then collapsed. She was now quite dead. The doctor was struggling with the oscillating double-turn epitran. This system hasn't been used in years, he said, pushing hard against the standby spigot situated in the centre of the Osborne dish. Taking a deep breath, he tried again. Are you turning it in the right direction? inquired Alex. Of course I am. Exasperated, the doctor stepped back to look. You can see it has a left-hand thread. Alex leant forward, grasped the spigot and twisted its handle. There you are. It's a right-hand drive. Irritated, the doctor grabbed the spigot and this time turned it in the other direction. Although it moved, the resistance was much greater than he had expected. Let me try said Alex, easing himself round the Time Lord to seize hold of the Osborne dish. Clasping it tightly, he poured all his strength into moving the mechanism, but was surprised how little water was released. At our current rate, we could be here for days. There must be a valve we haven't opened. The doctor reflected for a moment, then ran his fingers behind the Osborne dish. As he searched, his hands settled on a set of smooth angled metal teeth running the circumference of the dish. Feel this, he said. 
The teeth must be part of a ratchet-type system. Connect them to a cog or pole at one end, and an electric motor at the other, or something that has a bit of leverage, and we might be able to turn the dish. Pretending to search for something, Alex patted his pockets with his misshapen hands. I'm afraid I'm fresh out of things with a bit of leverage, Doctor. So am I. Really, I should always carry a jemmy. The Doctor paused, ideas now pouring through his mind. I think I'm about to have a eureka moment, he blurted. Alex watched as the Time Lord's face lit up. Can I ask what it is? The Doctor seemed delighted with himself. I might have to take my trousers down. Alex was uncertain what to make of this. Seeing his concern, the Doctor added, I need my belt, he said, unbuckling it. I have an idea that might just work. He then pulled the belt free of its loops. We may be able to generate a little more leverage and open the valve. How? inquired a mystified Alex. The Time Lord crossed to the oscillating double-turn epitran, inserted the hinge pin of the belt's buckle under the set of smooth-angled metal teeth running the circumference of the Osborne dish. He then twisted the buckle and engaged the pin into the teeth, wrapped the belt around the Osborne dish and pulled. There was some movement. Alex quickly joined the doctor. Let me give you a hand, he said, taking hold of the end of the belt. Together, the two men threw all their weight and strength into pulling the belt. Slowly, over several sweaty, struggling minutes, the valve began to open and the water to discharge. Then the flow stopped. Oh dear, sighed the Time Lord. Do you think we've drained enough to compromise the hydrostabilization plant? asked Alex. And cause the pyramids to wobble sufficiently? The doctor shook his head. I don't know, and neither can we wait around to see if it has. There must be an emergency alarm ringing somewhere. I'd hate to have to fight Daleks with my trousers around my ankles. Thank goodness I'm also wearing braces, he said, snapping them again. If only Perry were here to see me now, I do hope she's all right. As he flipped his coat off the security camera, the light went out in the pump room. Natasha and Grigory's fire is destroying the contact breakers far quicker than I expected. That'll make it too easy for the Daleks to find them. And that was exactly what was about to happen. As Natasha and Grigory continued to load the fire with more rags and healthy tots of Voxnik, three Goldsphere Daleks made their way down a nearby tunnel towards them. Their malfunctioning propulsion units quietly clicking and clacking as they went. What was that? asked a nervous Grigory. The reply came not from Natasha, but from a blast of deadly light from a Dalek's gun. Grigory screamed as he hit the floor. Quickly, Natasha grabbed her blaster and fired into the darkness of the corridor. The lead Dalek exploded and burst into flames, lighting the area with eerie shapes. Now Natasha could see two other Daleks gliding through the smoke and about to descend upon her. She ran forward and, using the destroyed Dalek as cover, continued to fire. A second Dalek was reduced to a conflagration. The remaining Dalek continued its onslaught, catching Natasha on her leg with a burst of its weapon. 
Natasha screamed and rolled away into a corner. Now blasting at full power, the Dalek fired again and again into every shadow until it found her. With one last burst of effort, she fired at her opponent and the creature expired in a loud pyrotechnic display. Racked with pain, the mortally wounded Natasha checked the power left in her blaster and saw she had just one last round. Being a prisoner of the Daleks, she realised, would mean the same terrible fate as befell her father. She placed the muzzle of the weapon against the side of her head and squeezed the trigger. Natasha Stengos ceased to exist. She was only 25. Deciding there was little else they could do with the oscillating double-turn Epitran, the Doctor and Alex made their way through the security doors and tunnels back to Natasha and Grigory. Unfortunately, they were too late. Only their sad bodies and smoking Dalek wrecks remained. I should never have left them. The Doctor cursed himself as he walked back to the Dalek storage area with Alex. They're dead, and we've achieved nothing. Maybe not, Doctor, said Alex, indicating Daleks on a number of the upper tiers as they arrived at the sector. The loss of electrical power had caused some of the Daleks to be activated too soon, and they were now malfunctioning. Now, out of their cocoons and teetering on the edges of the metal shelves, they were about to tumble to their destruction. The disorientated Daleks involuntarily launched themselves, spinning and twirling down onto the hard floor below. The impact, as before, was catastrophic and very loud. Crack! Splat! The Daleks imploded, causing their organic innards to splutter across the area. Alex looked on sadly at the spectacle, remembering those he had known and who had died in the great healer's experimentation. So much for the conquerors of the universe, he said ironically. There are many more intact, the doctor reminded him. We need to get away from here. The DJ pumped another highly directional ultrasonic beam of rock and roll into the second Dalek. This caused its dome to explode and Dalek tissue and fragments of casing to be blown along the corridor. In the studio, lodged behind a filing cabinet, Perry peeped over the top to see what was happening. Keep your head down, ordered the DJ. As he spoke, another gold sphere Dalek appeared in the doorway to the studio. You must surrender, it demanded. The Earth Woman must come with us. It is futile to resist. The DJ showed his disagreement by firing a further fatal beam of rock and roll into the Dalek. It seemed to Perry that the DJ was developing a new facet to his personality, that of proactive hero. He had become Super DJ. In his laboratory, the creator of the Daleks was in a state of febrile fury as he spun wildly in his chariot. What is happening? Why are my Daleks being destroyed? He was growing apoplectic. Send more Daleks, he screamed. I want that prattling DJ dead!
The DJ reset his rock and roll device preparing for further battle as Perry quickly glanced into the corridor on the lookout for Dalek reinforcements. What happens now? she asked. It's the broadcast to end all broadcasts. Perry looked confused. That's what you keep saying. We tell people what's happening here, he said, turning on a row of switches. With all transmission channels now open, everything we say and do will be transmitted to the whole galaxy. Perry was impressed. The DJ began his broadcast. I say, hey there! His voice, now fully Americanized, boomed into a microphone. This is the tranquil repose DJ on the planet Necros with a very special message for you! The sad sight of Joshua Jobel being loaded onto a gurney in the Chamber of Peace and Harmony was made even more pitiful by an edict from Davros that he would not receive a posture for perpetual instatement. The attendants paused as the voice of Derek Johnson, the DJ of Tranquil Repose, echoed around the area. Tarkis and Lilt looked up from their titivation of a particularly complex floral arrangement as the voice of Derek Johnson echoed from speakers high in the marble walls. Hey there, this is the DJ. This is not a stunt. I am under attack from the great healer's Daleks. So, the resistance starts, said Tarkis seriously. Yeah, Lilt snorted. But I never thought we'd begin with him. The DJ's voice continued. So, you guys, I need your help here. Spread the word. It's time for the revolution. The truth needs to be out about tranquil repose. Back in the old catacombs, the Doctor and Alex moved quickly along a very spooky corridor. The DJ's emergency broadcast reminded the Time Lord that Perry was now in even greater danger. I need to find Perry, said the Doctor urgently. Alex nodded. If she's with the DJ, I know where to find his studio. The Doctor smiled. Then let's go. This is the DJ, the voice boomed around the public address system. Hey, from my heart to your heart. Although the DJ was being courageous, he was also enjoying his revolution a little too much. This meant he didn't notice three more Gold Sphere Daleks entering the corridor outside the studio. TR is not a safe place, the DJ said into the microphone. The Great Healer is not who you think he is. Without warning, the lead Dalek fired and the DJ crashed to the floor. Quickly, Perry dropped down alongside him. Hang in there, she said. If we're to survive, I need to know how your rock and roll weapon works. But the DJ wasn't listening. Instead, he nostalgically rambled on about places he would never see or visit. Hey there. I'll never walk the mean streets of downtown Liverpool. He was confused and his speech slurred. Never drink Voxnick in the Cavern Club. Stroll down Penny Lane or sail a ferry across the Mersey. All that's possible, Perry said, trying to reassure him. All you need to do is tell me how to fire your rock and roll device. But instead of giving instructions, he started to snore. Wake up, Perry shouted. How do I operate this machine? 
Still no response. Wake up, she bawled even louder. This is really important. Nothing. She took hold of his tunic and shook the DJ vigorously. Please don't die, Perry had started to cry. I, I couldn't bear being responsible for the deaths of two people in one day. You will come with us, said the lead Gold Sphere Dalek, still lurking by the studio door. You must obey or you will be destroyed. The DJ sat up, suddenly alert. Hey, it's the Green Lever. Perry quickly swung the muzzle towards the lead Dalek, found the green trigger, and without hesitation, squeezed it. The beam of rock and roll found its mark, and the Dalek exploded. The second Dalek fired but missed, causing the filing cabinet Perry had recently hidden behind to explode, sending the DJ's special dedications flying everywhere. She fired again, and the second Dalek perished. Hey there! the DJ shouted as he started to pull himself to his feet. Nothing dishonest can defeat the truth of rock and roll! Then, as though to validate his statement, he forced himself fully upright and gave a small whoop. As he did, the third Dalek appeared in the doorway and fired. The DJ was thrown backwards to the floor. Perry rushed to him, but the large hole in his chest told her he was dead. No! she screamed. In the old catacombs, over the public address system, the doctor and Alex heard Perry sobbing. It's not fair. You didn't have to kill... As though a switch had been thrown, the voice was gone. The doctor was stunned. He now had no idea whether Perry was alive or dead. How much further to the DJ's studio? Not far, came the reply, but we must be careful of patrolling Daleks. With Alex pointing the way, both men increased their speed. Under the exertion, Alex had now started to wheeze badly, but carried on as best he could. Tarkis and Lilt stood in front of the TR computer that was inaccessible to the great healer's surveillance squad. Quickly, Tarkis tapped in his personal code, and, as before, the wall screen crackled into life, and almost the identical conversation was conducted. How do you do, Mr. Tarkis? And what is your pleasure? I want the ETA of the unscheduled freighter for tranquil repose. A transponder flashed up on the screen. Estimated time of arrival, ten minutes. Thank you, computer. You're welcome, Mr. Tarkis. Two heads peered around a corner and saw further along the passageway the DJ's studio. Outside was an attendant, armed with a laser rifle. It was a scenario the doctor had seen many times before, but always accompanied by the same conundrum. How to remain alive at the end of it all. The two men withdrew their heads. What do we do? whispered Alex. We distract the guard, responded the doctor, taking out his propelling pencil. Are you going to write him a letter? mused Alex. Maybe later. First I intend to divert his attention. The Time Lord threw the propelling pencil up into the air, and with a surprising amount of noise it hit the floor. The guard, suddenly alert, moved towards the source of the clatter. As he bent down, the doctor's fist 
connected with his jaw. The man fell unconscious to the ground. Quickly picking up his pencil, the doctor and Alex ran into the now empty studio. Perry had been taken, as had the body of the DJ. All that remained of the earlier fight were the shattered casings of several gold sphere Daleks. Nice paint job, said the Time Lord, kicking some of the Dalek debris to one side. Then he noticed, still mounted on its tripod, the DJ's highly directional ultrasonic rock and roll machine. Haven't seen one of those in a while, he said. Could this be the green lever we heard the DJ mention in the broadcast? Alex flicked the trigger. The device came to life in a paroxysm of concentrated rock and roll, destroying what was left of the studio door. The doctor smiled wanly. The spirit of the DJ was still alive and surely loving every minute. I think we need to stir things up a bit. Continue the DJ's revolution, announced Alex rather seriously. You go and rescue Perry while I spread the word. You won't last a second by yourself, said a concerned doctor. I have this to keep me company, he said, patting the highly directional ultrasonic rock and roll device. If the Daleks return, I'll be waiting. Again, Alex's face had that stubborn look of determination, and the doctor knew from earlier experience it was pointless arguing. Do you know where to find the Garden of Fond Memories? Alex nodded. Once I've found Perry, I'll meet you there as soon as I can. With directions from Alex, the doctor scooted along the darkest of passageways, up the steepest of steps and along the bleakest of corridors. His fears for Perry's well-being were growing. He wished he were beside her, offering comfort and reassurance. As he considered her fate and his failings, he turned a corner and almost ran directly into a Dalek standing guard. Resistance is futile! The creature rattled. You will come with me! Of course, said the doctor wearily. Here we go again. Take me to your leader. Alex sat at the DJ's console, wearing headphones and a mic. He didn't quite have the energetic presence of Derek Johnson, the ultimate in DJs, but he was about to give it his best. He hit the start button and said as firmly as he could, Hey, I say out there, my name is Alex, and I'm here to continue the DJ's revolution. I say, get down. You know what I mean, chaps. With his received pronunciation, he sounded more like a BBC radio announcer on 1950s Earth than a radical disc jockey. I say, chaps, get ready to revolt. In fact, I am already revolting. The uprising has already started. He paused, and then he added with real feeling, We urgently need your help. In Davros's laboratory, the creator of the Daleks was screaming the worst kind of blue murder, as now, echoing from his speakers, was Elvis Presley singing Blue Suede Shoes. Will I never be free of prattling DJs? bawled Davros. Send more Daleks! Destroy him! It seemed Davros would never be a true fan of rock and roll. Escorted by a Dalek, the doctor walked along another dark corridor, this time lined with statuary. Weird, he thought. Why would anyone have classical Greek statues in a dark passage 
without any suitable lighting. He made a mental note that if it were possible, these statues would be on their way back to Athens to be reunited with his old mate, Pericles. Now fully into his new role as DJ, Alex was beginning to adopt the style and presentation of Derek Johnson. The music had become louder, the dialogue more aggressive, the cause more crucial. Alex really believed he could win this one. That was until the doorway of the studio was suddenly filled with Daleks and several gun sticks fired. The doctor stopped in his tracks with a look of distress on his face. The sudden silence could only suggest one thing, that Davros's forces had already found and destroyed Alex. The gold sphere Dalek prodded the Time Lord with its manipulator arm. You will proceed! The doctor moved off and ahead saw the laboratory of the great healer. As he entered, he observed, scattered across the floor, the bodies of Kara, Bostock and Davros's attendant. Seated on a stool next to the great healer's destroyed life support system was Orsini, a resolute look fixed to his face. Behind him stood two guards, both with very itchy trigger fingers. There was an air of gloom and a stench of death pervading the area. At the heart of the laboratory, dominating like a colossus, Davros hovered in his chariot, exuding an air of prodigious self-satisfaction. With all the protagonists in place, it was like the opening scene of a Victorian melodrama awaiting the arrival of its hero. The doctor entered stage left and glanced around. Davros, he said, looking up at him. Love the hover buggy. Given your lifestyle, I'm surprised you could get the insurance. Davros gave a low growl. I hear that you still favour the Tellurian sense of humour. The doctor moved towards Kara. At least you're now upwardly mobile, which must be worth something. He bent down to examine her and found she was dead. With so many killings in tranquil repose, I should have guessed you were involved. He stood up and moved towards Bostock. Without bending down, he could see the squire, although badly wounded, was still alive. I see you've been busy, Davros, the doctor said, indicating the bodies. Whereas you have been rather foolish, doctor. Prerogative of a time, lord. He quickly scanned the room as Davros navigated his chariot to the ground. Where's Perry? Safe, I believe. At least for the time being. The doctor turned to Orsini. I thought you would have done your work and gone by now. He tried, said Davros. But as you know, I'm not so easy to destroy. So it seems. The last time we met, your ship blew up. I thought with you on board. Davros chuckled. Not when there is an escape pod to be had. Or it appears a lift by transporter to this place. There I was fortunate, said Davros, though I had to wait many excruciating months. In fact, I almost died. At the risk of sounding rude, I rather wish you had, commented the doctor. It would have saved me the unnerving experience of seeing my tombstone in the Garden of Fond Memories. You didn't like the statue, said Davros coyly. 
A very good likeness. But really, you shouldn't have bothered. Davros laughed. <laughs> As with the news of Stengos's death, it was all part of an elaborate scheme to lure you here. I must confess, watching the inconvenience you suffered gave me a certain sadistic pleasure. Well, apart from the sadism, a little homicide and some body snatching, what else have you been up to? Although not quite in the Mona Lisa League, an enigmatic smile settled on Davros's face. You cannot steal what has already been abandoned. No one is interested in the people here. That's not what I've heard. As your grave-robbing friends have now been exterminated, this accusation will not be made again. Do you never do anything but kill? You are mistaken, Doctor. I am known as the Great Healer. A somewhat flippant title, perhaps, but not without foundation. I have conquered the diseases that brought their victims here. In every way I have complied with the wishes of those who came in anticipation of one day being returned to full life. But never in their worst nightmares did any of them expect to come back to life as Daleks. As the Time Lord spoke, Davros grandly moved around the area. It was a privilege, he bellowed. A great honour for them. While Davros continued to extol the virtues of his vile scheme, Orsini took the opportunity to indicate to the Doctor that the black box near him was somehow significant. The Doctor nodded his acknowledgement. All the resting ones I turned into Daleks were people of status, ambition. They would understand, especially as I have given them the opportunity to become masters of the universe. With you as their emperor? Of course, Time Lord. Could there be any other candidate? The doctor noticed the shriveled mask of Davros's face inside the destroyed life support system. Well, you always were two-faced, but this time you've excelled yourself. Thank you, Doctor, said Davros wryly. What of the lesser intellects? the doctor demanded. Or will they be left to rot? You should know me better than that. I never waste a valuable commodity. How else could I finance my work? You tell me. I would quite like to know, as long as it isn't too macabre. Davros smirked. Then I shall give you a version for the faint-hearted. The creator of the Daleks switched off his smug look. The humanoid form makes an excellent concentrated protein. This part of the galaxy is developing quickly. Famine was one of its major problems. He paused dramatically. This is no longer the case. The doctor was aghast. You mean you've turned them into food? Davros purred. A scheme that has earned me great acclaim. But did you bother to tell anyone they might be eating their own relatives? Certainly not. That would have created what I believe is termed consumer resistance. <laughs> they were grateful for the food. It allowed them to go on living. Until you were in a position to take over their planets by controlling the one and only food supply. Precisely, said Davros. 
It is capitalism at its most succinct. Chapter 9 An icy wind swept across the landing pad at tranquil repose, causing powdery snow to swirl and twirl into fluffy cones. Dressed only in their funerary uniform, Tarkis and Lilt shivered as they waited for the mothership's shuttle to complete its landing procedure. As soon as it had, grey liveried Daleks, the most feared of their race, disgorged from every unloading ramp and lined up into small phalanxes of dark, menacing steel. Unusually for grey Daleks, they had also brought a corps of human combat troops. The Alpha Dalek approached the two men. We have been sent by the Supreme Dalek. Based on the planet Skaro, the Supreme Dalek had reacted to Tarkas's call for help by dispatching a freighter of Daleks and support troops. In reality, they had come to apprehend Davros for his continued crimes against the Supreme Dalek. The key offence was his creation of a new line of Dalek with superior intellectual capacity. Such a breed was a direct threat to the Supreme Dalek's authority and could not be tolerated. Where is Davros? snapped the Beta Dalek, gliding alongside Alpha. Tarkas was somewhat unnerved. This was not how he had expected the meeting to go. When we've discussed our deal, he mumbled nervously, I'll take you to him. His guard must be totally exterminated! They must not know we are here, bleated Alpha. They won't, chipped in Lilt. Our visual security system is down. They won't see anything coming. Then take us to Davros now. Proceed. Delay will not be tolerated. That is my order. You will obey. You will obey my order now. Tarkis was overwhelmed by the rat-a-tat-tat barrage of insistent and repetitive commands from Alpha. Of course, he said apprehensively, I'll take you now. The Alpha leader then ordered all corridors leading to Davros's laboratory to be secured. Place Daleks and troopers every five meters, it ordered. We must not be impeded in our departure. Enemies of the Supreme Dalek must be exterminated. I obey, said Beta. Instantly, a unit set off to carry out the order. Two guards lifted the body of Kara from the laboratory floor and carried her away as Perry entered the room, escorted by a gold sphere Dalek. Bostock, now conscious, was waiting for his master's next command. The signal was an almost imperceptible movement of Orsini's left thumb and forefinger. This told Bostock everything he needed to know. On seeing the doctor, a relieved Perry ran to him. Are you all right? inquired the Time Lord, placing a comforting arm around her shoulder. Perry nodded, but her bleary red eyes told a different story. I'm sorry about the DJ and what happened. Her lip quivering, Perry nodded. I mean, he was a sweet guy, full of rock and roll. Overhearing their conversation, Davros swished in hover mode across the room and landed next to Perry and the Doctor. Save your meaningless condolences, he announced in an overgrand manner. 
Instead, prepare to witness the greatest rebirth of all time. The Time Lord laughed. You may be disappointed, he said. The pyramid's electrical supply has been badly damaged and will certainly impede the awakening of your new Daleks. Full of pomposity, Davros wagged his index finger in the Doctor's face. Such vandalism will be easily rectified, he cackled. Once more you have failed, Time Lord. Once more I have beaten you. As the creator of the Daleks boasted, Bostock slowly pulled a small blaster from a hidden pocket in his tunic, carefully aimed and then fired at Davros. But instead of hitting the planned target of his head, the blast blew apart his remaining hand. This caused Davros to scream and howl in agonizing pain as green, viscous blood gushed from the wound and seeped down into his chariot. Immediately a Dalek fired. The trustworthy Bostock, squire to the Grand Master, died. Bostock! Orsini cried in utter anguish. While two guards rushed to Davros's aid, the doctor was able, in the confusion, to snatch up Bostock's fallen blaster and slide it across the floor to Orsini. Catching the gun and, at the cost of his dignity, the Grand Master was forced to hide the weapon by sitting on it. As he did, more Gold Sphere Daleks poured into the room, screaming, Exterminate! 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 With the room brimming with Gold Sphere Daleks, Perry and the Time Lord were soon overwhelmed and had no alternative other than to surrender. Is this your idea of a peaceful visit? Perry gasped. You are our prisoners, bellowed a gold sphere Dalek. You must not speak. Disobey and you will be exterminated, said another. It was ironic, thought the Doctor, that given all of Davros's re-engineering, his new Daleks were behaving just the same as all his previous models. In the pump room, with the doctor's belt still tightly in place, water started to drip from the oscillating double-turn epitran. If water could think, it might have questioned why it had been confined in a pressurised circulating system without the pleasure of freely cascading and tumbling in a river, stream or waterfall. Instead, it had spent decades trapped between heat-hardened layers of tin clavic circulating in a polyhedron structure. But now something was starting to happen. The doctor's reinforced ninostic synthetic belt had somehow tightened around the Osborne dish and eased it further open. In a particularly dingy corridor in the catacombs, two attendants scurried about their business. Without warning, a grey Dalek emerged from deep shadow and challenged them. Halt! You will obey my order! The two attendants, now flustered, started to run. You will obey me! There was no response as the attendants increased their speed. You will be exterminated! A moment later, death poured from a trooper's gun and the two attendants collapsed. Tarkis stepped forward, appalled at the senseless carnage. You promised there wouldn't be any killing. We must continue, rasped Alpha. Take me to Davros, now! In the pump room, the water had begun to flow faster. 
and was now pulsing out of the hydro-stabilization system at a much increased rate. As if bidding for freedom, it spread across the floor, through the exit, and out onto the base of the pyramid. Prepare the surgical unit, ordered Davros. Incandescent with rage and pain, he turned to the doctor and held up his mutilated hand. You see, he said, such a foolish waste of energy trying to kill me. No arm in trying, the Time Lord quipped. But Davros wasn't amused. Before you become a Dalek, you will suffer for every indignity you have ever caused me and the Dalek race. But before that happens, the Doctor countered, I will make sure you stand trial for your life in the High Courts of Gallifrey. Under orders, a TR guard made his way along a corridor towards Davros's laboratory. On arrival, he was joined by three Gold Sphere Daleks, which positioned themselves at the entrance. With no other human to chat with, the guard shuffled up and down the corridor, attempting to alleviate his boredom. He hated this sort of duty. He felt such a clear and obvious target. Terrified a knife would lash out of the darkness and terminate his life. On this occasion, it was only a fist from Tarkis that rendered him unconscious. At least the guard was out of a brutal fight. The phalanx of Grey Daleks and troopers moved into the far end of the corridor, broke up into smaller factions, and instantly opened fire on the Gold Sphere Daleks, guarding the laboratory. We are under attack! screamed a Gold Sphere Dalek as his comrade exploded in sparks and spatters. We must defend Davros! But it soon became evident they were no match for the attacking Grey Warrior Daleks. The gunfire became more intense, and the remaining Gold Sphere Daleks exploded with dreadful effect. Gold and white shards of casing, now acting as shrapnel, ripped into the corridor walls and smashed into the remaining Dalek. Terrible screams ensued as the soft organic tissue of Davros's Daleks began to ooze across the floor. Inside Davros's laboratory, panic was growing. What is happening in the corridor? bellowed Davros. Activate my special guard! As an attendant hurried to carry out the order, Orsini quickly retrieved Bostock's gun and shot him dead. Using his injured hand, Davros wrestled with the chariot's hover control in an attempt to escape. Seeing what was happening, the doctor pulled out his propelling pencil, rushed forward and drove it into the control panel, rendering the chariot totally inoperable. I must be protected, roared Davros. Where is my special guard? But instead of his gold sphere Daleks, an invading phalanx of grey ones poured into the laboratory. What is this? screamed Davros. I have been betrayed! With the area cleared and the weapons seized by the supporting troopers, the Alpha Dalek swept in like the great conquering hero it thought itself to be. How did you find me? Davros fumed. Who is my betrayer? Tarkis and Lilt stepped forward. I sent for them, Tarkis announced. Alpha squared up to Davros. You are to be taken to Scarrow. You will stand trial for crimes against the Dalek race. And not before time, said Tarkis, finding his courage. This used to be a good place before you came. I enjoyed working here, Lilt nodded. 
Once you've gone, it'll be a good place again. The doctor cleared his throat. Don't be too certain. You'll be lucky to get out of this alive. Tarkis was confused. They said they were going to destroy Davros's Daleks. They will not be destroyed, grated Alpha. They will be made stronger, reconditioned to obey the will of the Supreme Dalek. They will join our conquering army. Predictable as ever, the Time Lord groaned, always causing trouble. Secure the pyramids until the Gold Sphere Daleks can be reprogrammed, ordered Alpha. Davros was horrified. No! These are my Daleks! They serve only me! Not anymore, it seems, teased the Doctor wickedly. You speak treason, spat Davros. The Time Lord smiled. Oh yes, he said, on this occasion fluently. Davros, you will come with us, ordered Alpha. You are a sworn enemy of the Supreme Dalek. No, take him. Davros waved his destroyed hand at the Doctor. He is the ultimate nemesis of the Daleks. He is the Doctor. Me? A Doctor? The Time Lord muttered. No, not possible. Can't even do first aid. The Beta Daleks scanned information on the shuttle database. His image does not compute with the known appearance of the Doctor. Davros erupted. He's regenerated, fool! All prisoners will be detained here, said Alpha. Their identities will be verified. Beta Dalek pushed Davros with its manipulator arm. You will now be taken to Scarrow or be exterminated. You have not heard the last of me, raged the creator of the Daleks. I shall return! And I shall be waiting, a pragmatic Time Lord responded. Unable to steer his own chariot, Davros had to suffer the ignominy of being shunted by Daleks to Tranquil Repose's launch pad. Leaving a single grey Dalek and trooper to guard the lab, the escort left with Davros bitterly complaining every centimetre of the way. Meanwhile, in what had been Davros's laboratory, treason was afoot. The group was now planning their next move. We've got to act fast, said the doctor in a low, commanding voice. It's even more essential we destroy Davros's Daleks before they can be activated. And how exactly do we do that? inquired Perry. Orsini eyed the grey Dalek and trooper on guard outside. First, we need to get rid of them. Easier said than done, mused Tarkis. Yeah, murmured Lilt. Pity they took our weapons. If I may interrupt, said Orsini, I might be able to help there. Can someone please pass me my prosthetic leg? Perry obliged gingerly and passed him a heavy limb. You going for a walk? sniggered Lilt. Orsini ignored the feeble attempt at humour. I never travel light, said the Grand Master, rummaging inside the leg. In amongst the microprocessors, hydraulic cylinders and general mechanical bits and pieces he found wrapped in padding a small blaster and a handful of grenades. Perry looked at the weapons. Will that blaster work on a Dalek? 
it'll take out the eyepiece, said Orsini reassuringly. That's always a good place to start. Suddenly there was a loud cracking sound. What's that? asked Lilt. The doctor cocked his head. Sounds like some very angry water, he smiled. It seems Alex and I were more successful than we thought. More vexed than ever, Davros was still being towed through the catacombs in full sight of the grey Daleks lining the route. For the creator of the Daleks, this shaming experience would be nothing compared to what awaited him on Skaro. I created you, cried Davros. I am your master. We serve only the supreme Dalek, Alpha blurted. That upstart, Davros sneered. I could make you all supreme Daleks. I have the power. You must obey me. I am Davros. But no one was listening. Orsini, seated on his stool, cogitated on the course of action he would take during the impending fight. Having eased a double-edged throwing knife from his remaining boot, he realised with the loss of his prosthetic leg, his contribution would be a small one. As the Knight of the Grand Order of Oberon slid the knife along the floor to lilt, he noticed about fifty centimetres away Kara's black box of delight, abandoned during the earlier fight. Orsini couldn't believe his luck. If the box contained what he thought it did, there was still a chance of an honourable kill, and his reinstatement to the Order of Oberon. Surreptitiously, he extended his leg, hooked his toe around the corner of the box, and slowly dragged it towards him. Fortunately, his activities were only seen by the doctor, who nodded his approval. Positioned behind Davros's destroyed life support system, the Time Lord was checking the condition of the blaster Orsini had kindly given him. The doctor wasn't happy about using the weapon. The thought of killing even Daleks made him feel uncomfortable. He knew Perry felt the same and was angry with himself for exposing her to such violence and putting her at great risk. Somehow, he needed to ensure that these sorts of situations wouldn't arise again. Silently, Orsini dropped to his knee and in a single stiff wave indicated the action should start. Using the laboratory furniture as cover, Tarkas and Lilt quickly moved towards the doorway. You out there, called Tarkis. We need to talk. You must not leave the laboratory. The Dalek's tone was shrill and unfriendly. We have an important message for your master, said Lilt. We must speak to him at once. As the trooper and Grey Dalek entered the lab, Orsini's throwing knife zipped through the air at speed and hit the trooper in the chest. As the man fell, the doctor opened fire on the grey Dalek and, after several attempts, scored a direct hit on its eyepiece. The Dalek started to gyrate as it wildly fired its gunstick. My vision is impaired! I cannot see! The doctor died behind the wreckage of Davros's discarded life support system. Now, Perry, he boomed. With all the courage she could muster, Perry darted forward, hooked one of Orsini's grenades onto the Dalek's casing and ran back for cover behind a large case of electronics. I am under attack! Emergency! Emergency! There was almost a hint of fear in the Dalek's voice. 
and then suddenly it exploded, peppering the laboratory with shards of grey casing. Emerging from their respective hiding places, the doctor said, I can't be certain how well the change of water pressure will affect the pyramid's hydrostabilization. What we also need now is a bomb to ensure the destruction of the new Daleks. Takis was stunned. You can't destroy this place, he pleaded. Tranquil repose has ceased to have any practical function, the doctor tried to sound sympathetic. The cryogenic chambers are empty. Davros used the contents for synthetic protein or as the building blocks for new Daleks. There's hardly anyone left, I'm sorry. Lilt looked astounded. You're having us on. He's telling the truth, said Orsini. After what Davros has done, you'll never restore the reputation of this place. Lilt turned to Tarkis. Don't trust them. We've no reason to lie, said Orsini, indicating the Time Lord. Least of all him. But Tarkis was almost on the verge of tears. We were the best. I can't believe all our hard work has been for nothing. It hasn't, the doctor interrupted. If you want, I can show you a new way of life. You what? Lilt said. Davros created a demand for synthetic protein. If it ceases to be fulfilled, the populations on dependent planets will die. The doctor plucked the stem of Herba baculum vitae from where it was clipped on Tarkas's tunic. What's the common name for this? Tarkas's face lit up. Well, everyone knows that. It's the weed plant. Precisely. It grows everywhere and anywhere on Necros. When refined, it produces an edible, high-protein foodstuff. Hey, that's a great idea, chirped Perry. Lilt shrugged. Tarkis knows a ton about horticulture. He could grow that stuff dead easy. Tarkis nodded enthusiastically, his imagination already full of vast, overflowing acreages of Herba Baculum Vitae. Still seated on his stool, Orsini avidly listened as more and more plans were made for the future, a better future. He knew he could contribute, albeit in an extreme way. I'm sorry to interrupt again, said the Grand Master, but you must all leave at once. He pointed to Kara's black box next to him. I have a bomb, and I would like to explode it, he said, picking up the device. The doctor's face beamed. Why didn't you say earlier? You knew we needed one. I've only just worked up the courage to use it. Please now leave. Not only will it destroy Davros's Daleks, but I might just catch him as well. The Time Lord was horrified. You can't sacrifice yourself like this. I'll help you rig its timer. Perry nodded vigorously. The doctor's right. We'll help you. Orsini shook his head. There isn't one, he said. Once I press the detonator, well... This is crazy, Perry insisted. Why throw away your life? Orsini drew a deep breath. I've always wanted an honourable kill, he said at last. Davros will be it. Perry was again on the verge of tears. Don't just stand there, Doctor. Talk him out of it. The Time Lord shrugged. He's a knight of the Grand Order of Oberon. You don't talk them out of anything. At least, not when it comes to honour. Please go, urged Orsini. The catacombs are deep. You shall be able to find a safe place.
The doctor turned to the group. You heard the Grand Master? It's time to leave. Lilt walked to the exit as Tarkis grabbed Perry's hand. There was a look of sadness on her face as she was coaxed along the corridor by Tarkis. I'll join you as soon as I can, the doctor called after them. He then turned to Orsini. Is there anything I can do? Orsini tore the small insignia of his order from his tunic and gave it to the doctor. Return this to my order. Tell them how we died. The doctor nodded. No more words. Now go. As the doctor left the laboratory, Orsini crawled across to where Bostock's body lay. The Grand Master was very calm, convinced that what he was about to do was perfectly correct. Bostock had been a fine squire, and for Orsini to die in his company would be a great honour. Very carefully, as if there was something highly ceremonial in the arrangement, Orsini placed Kara's black box between them, the firing mechanism orientated to the left side. Now they were ready. The water in the pyramid storing the gold sphere Daleks had now become a rushing, gushing torrent. Soon it would be free of the polyhedron that had been its prison and on its way towards the sea and freedom. So it goes. Perry, Lilt and Tarkis moved rapidly through the catacombs, across enormous landings and up endless flights of stairs. Such was their determination to survive, none of them faltered, tripped or slowed down. They crossed from the old to the new catacombs, then up more stairs. At the top, Perry paused for a moment and glanced back. Doctor! she called in a loud, shrill voice. But there wasn't any reply. They ran on, past endless preparation rooms, and almost collided with an agitated crowd of milling funerary attendants. This is a security alert. Code 7, I want everyone to clear this area immediately, Tarkis shouted in his most authoritative voice. I repeat, this is a security alert. Perry was breathless. Are we out of the bomb's range now? Lilt shook his head. Who knows, he said. There could be anything in that black box. The group moved off again as a loud humming noise filled the area. What's that? asked Perry. A Mark Seven Statin shuttle, replied Tarkis. Seeing this meant absolutely nothing to Perry, Lilt added, It's a Dalek ship, which means they're taking Davros away. Come on, move, urged Tarkis. We have to get out of here. Perry was now worried about the well-being of the Time Lord. No, we must wait for the Doctor. Don't worry, he'll make his own way, reassured Tarkis. But she wasn't so sure. Holding the body of Bostock gently in his arms, Orsini started to tap the ignition sequence into Kara's black box. Wouldn't it be dreadful, Bostock, my old friend, if I couldn't recollect the code? Orsini laughed. <laughs> a Grand Master who can't remember a few simple numbers. But he hadn't forgotten. And the tiny box of delights exploded with massive force. From the box, 
The movement of the explosion travelled upwards and outwards at a terrifying speed, destroying everything in its path. Lintels fractured, ceilings collapsed, and floors were torn apart as the explosive and incendiary chemicals did their work. The explosion travelled through the building until it finally blew large chunks of the roof into the sky as the Dalek shuttle containing Davros accelerated away from tranquil repose. Such was the force of the explosion, the ensuing vibration coupled with the escaping water caused the hydrostabilization of the pyramid to fail. The polyhedron began to sway and slowly crumble, destroying Davros's new gold sphere Daleks stored inside. In spite of everything, the Doctor and Alex's work had succeeded. Tarkis Lilton Perry took cover behind a statue in the Garden of Fond Memories as flying debris tumbled from the disintegrating twin pyramids. I bet the President didn't expect his principal wife to go with such a bang. Tarkis smirked as he jabbed Lilton the ribs. He won't be sorry, mister, Lilt agreed. As things began to settle, the doctor, coughing, spluttering and covered in a layer of thick mortar dust, stumbled towards them. Delighted, Perry ran to greet him. Are you all right? she asked, her eyes glistening with tears. I'll be fine, the Time Lord spluttered, once I've emptied my lungs of tranquil repose. Perry squeezed his hand. I'm really relieved, and there are hardly any casualties. She paused for a moment. The bad news is Davros got away. Those great Dalek things simply whisked him up in a second. The doctor's mood changed and he now looked grim. I need to go after Davros. Perry was suddenly annoyed. No, Doctor, surely our help is needed here. The Time Lord was not convinced. And the chaos and carnage Davros could cause? Perry shook her head. He's a prisoner of the Supreme Dalek. He won't be around to cause any trouble. She was right, thought the Doctor. But before he could reply, he noticed Alex limping across the Garden of Fond Memories. Over here, the doctor called. Alex let out a schoolboy whoop. Did you see that pyramid fly? He cheered. As he joined the group, the doctor grabbed his hand and shook it firmly. I thought you'd had it, said the doctor. Not when I had a directional ultrasonic beam of rock and roll to look after me. I mean, that machine really hates Daleks. If you press the right button, he smiled, it takes out three at a time. You made a great DJ, Perry said a little sadly. Derek Johnson would have been proud. Suddenly a shower of debris fell from the fragmented pyramid and crashed onto the garden nearby. If we are to enjoy our success, I suggest we leave here, the Time Lord advised. Hastily the group gathered themselves together, moved away from the damaged buildings and towards open ground. Will they execute Davros? asked Perry as they continued to walk along the Marble Avenue. I'd hate to think Orsini died for nothing. The doctor shook his head and gestured to the collapsing pyramid. Orsini achieved a greater kill than he could ever have thought possible. His bomb contributed to destroying Davros's new hateful generation of Daleks. Alex took a breath. It's a pity Davros can't be tried for what he did here. The Time Lord nodded. Daleks have little regard for other life forms and their suffering. 
when he's returned to Scarrow, only his crimes against the Supreme Dalek will be considered. Alex looked sad. Is there nothing we can do? The doctor pondered for a moment. Davros has a knack of escaping from prison, he said. When he does, we will be ready for him, and this time he will be tried for those who he murdered here and elsewhere. Of one thing I am certain, what happened here at Tranquil Repose must never be allowed to happen ever again. As the sun began to set and the temperature dropped, a team of TR workers joined the doctor and his group, concerned as to where they would sleep that night. Oh, don't worry, said the doctor. I know somewhere with many bedrooms, a robotic chef that can make food that tastes as if it came directly from paradise, and a cinema that can show any film ever made. You'll be more than comfortable. Having brushed away the snow with the side of his boot, Tarkis was scratching at the soil. I've been thinking about producing protein, he said, looking around the garden of fond memories. This plot would make very good growing land. The doctor cleared his throat. This place is called Tranquil Repose. I think we should leave it that way. Doctor, maybe we can stay and help, suggested Perry. And me, offered Alex. I'd like to contribute something. After what's happened, this place is bound to need a psychiatrist. The Time Lord nodded. I see no reason why not, Perry. Certainly for a little while. And yes, Alex, that's a capital idea. Perry's face lit up. Hey, Doctor, when we finished here, can we take a real holiday? I should think so. Suddenly the Time Lord became rather lyrical. I know somewhere that is truly serene, peaceful, restful. A panacea for the cares of mind. Perry wasn't so certain. Can't we go somewhere fun? Fun? The Time Lord was momentarily confused. Oh, he said. I suppose anywhere will be peaceful after Necros. All right, he thought for a moment. I'll take you to... But that would remain a secret for quite some time. Doctor Who, Revelation of the Daleks, by Eric Sayward, was read by Terry Malloy and is published by BBC Audio. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this program.